1994年11月20日女子プロレスの一番熱く長い一日史上最大の決戦ビッグエッグレスリングユニバースドーム頂上対戦ただいまより開催いたします Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 12 of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. I'm your host George Thompson. With me as always, I have David Forrest and Sarah Parkin. How are you guys doing? Not bad, all things considered. Gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, we, we should explain. Yes. <laughs> I'm having a really swell April 2021. Um, <laughs> I'm in contention for the title, you know, all bets are off. I mean, we're going all the way and, you know, I'm really looking forward to... The Euros, you know, David Marshall and goal, you know, for Scotland. We're gonna, it's gonna be so good. I'm, I'm, I'm not being funny, gents, but when we first started talking about Big Egg Podcasting Universe, I sort of thought it would be finished by April 2021. I mean, yeah, so we, we, we thought a lot of things. I, for one, am looking forward to logging onto Twitter and receiving lots of verifiable information from public figures before paying homage to the reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. So, um, yeah. We, a lot's happened. Uh, uh, President, uh, Prime Minister Boris really has his work cut out for him, <laughs> you know, but he's got less trust there. Um, did you? Waiting uh, in the wings. Yeah, waiting in the wings. Oh, yeah, God. Uh, oh, it's fine because everything's just going to get handed over and Sajid Javid's going to come and sweep <laughs> into victory, isn't he? Sure. Well, are you future proofing this when, for when Sunak resigns and then, and then, like, so you can look like fucking Cassandra? <laughs> you've called the next prime minister all i'm saying is that i really hope england have a, a great nation week group a campaign um next year <laughs> oh, oh it still still cuts deep so yeah listeners you might need a little bit of context as you can probably tell um we are recording this in november 2022 we originally recorded this episode several months prior Who's going to tell the nice people why we're recording this in 2022 in November? Look, look mistakes were made. <laughs> First of all, I'll say it wasn't my fault, right? It usually is. It wasn't my fault, right? I don't quite believe we did record this. I remember it, right? <laughs> I remember it. The only reason I remember it is because you'd done the episode after and you made a joke about how I couldn't remember recording the episode before. I, I seem to believe at the time... After that, I was like, did we? Oh, yeah, I've not put that out. And I looked for it. And basically, there's no there's no Skype chat and there's no Zencaster file. So apparently we did it by fucking pigeon carrier mail <laughs> because there's no trace online of this. And it's not in a, when we once had an episode that I accidentally forgot to download 30 days after Skype died. Because there's usually still a file there. You just can't play it after 30 days. But 
It's just not there. There's nothing there at yeah, all. It, it has disappeared into the phantom zone, unfortunately. So we're having to re-record it, but uh, I, I've I mean, confidence that it will be even better than it was last time. I, I would just like to emphasise that um, I thought things had gone a little bit quiet on the Big Egg podcasting front um, to the tune of a few months, but I was like, you know what? David uh, D- David mixes all of these episodes, and I know he's really busy because this is like his fourth podcast or something that he does. I was like, I'm sure he's really busy. I don't want to be an arsehole. I don't want to get on. I, I don't want to start getting on at anybody. For context, I, I, listeners, we were discussing accommodation options for pro wrestling East Wrestle Queendom, which is happening um, a couple of days after we record this in November 2022. <laughs> Um, and whilst we were discussing, like, we'd booked a hotel room and David was trying to figure out where the hell he was going to stay, he, he then essentially confessed to me mid-conversation um, that he basically didn't know where the episode was. I can't remember exactly how... No, I said that I had a grave confession to make, because essentially I was like, look, mum and dad work really hard to take care of the kids, right? They, they're getting a weekend away, you know, a romantic weekend away. You don't want to have to lumber the wane on them. Um, with this, so I'll give them an out to go. Ah, you know what? You're a dick, David. You're not staying with us. And then you went, Oh, don't tell me you've lost the episode. And as you typed that, I also typed, I have lost the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple of minutes later, we worked out that David had confessed this to George about two weeks earlier, and George hadn't told me because he'd basically said, You can be the one to tell us. <laughs> So the two Absolutely fair. Because they were both scared shitless of telling we, me they'd we, lost the episode. We, we also... And this has been going on for a period of months since we lost the episode. I, I tell you what, did it, it, this never this never happens on how to wrestling, does it? No, no. Oh god. Yes, indeed. Um so and also competent. So the uh, also then we then found out that um we had got some cross wires and the night that David is actually staying in London for the wrestling is not the night we booked the hotel for. <laughs> there is also that. But be that as it may, it is time for episode twelve to begin, and it is finally time for us to start discussing what is the centerpiece of the show, Big Egg Wrestling Universe, the eight woman tournament known as the V Top. This is what it's all about. We've sat through the amateur wrestling, the shoot boxing, the Indian children like it's all come down to this this is the most prestigious thing on the show it's uh, it's an eight-woman tournament uh, there's a loosely defined prize for the winner i think they get a shot for the red belt um and it is going to pit five of ajw's finest against one top star from each of the partner promotions that are involved in the show these being lpw fmw and jwp if you are the proverbial simpsons character who has spent the last unreasonable amount of time listening to every episode and saying but when are we going to get to the fireworks factory my friends we fucking got there welcome to the fireworks it's, it's incredible to tomorrow <laughs> i am um, i looked up when we put the first episode of this out right it was it was Literally about three weeks after the initial COVID lockdown, right? <laughs> and, we, and, we and I believe it that it'd been in the can for a while at that point. Yeah. Yeah, we recorded it in January, I'm pretty sure. And now <laughs> finally, in November 2022, we have got to the fucking Retop tournament. Uh, yeah, and we've still got several episodes to go to, uh, to deal with it, so we had better get cracking with. Good news is, guys. <laughs> 
the re- the episode after this was recorded about three months ago. <laughs> yes, yes, that and that's true. We've we've got one less to record than I thought. Oh, brilliant! And the audio gremlins are not going to eat that one, hopefully. So we should be good. Match number fourteen is what we are going to start our show with. This is a quarterfinal match in the VTOP tournament, and it is pitting Yumiko Hotter, representing AJW, against the FMW representative Combat Toyota. Now, long-time listeners of this podcast, back from 2016, the Frosty Chocolate Milkshakes era, uh, may remember Combat Toyota from David's first ever pro match, the legendary and notorious Combat Toyota versus Makumi Kudo exploding barbed wire deathmatch. So that is the self-same Combat Toyota from that in a much less violent but still pretty violent environment as always before we get into the nuts and bolts of the match itself sarah is going to give us a little bit of uh, context such as who these women are and what are they doing here sarah friends welcome to the vtop tournament we are starting it with two frankly terrifying women so let's let's start with combat toyota first so Toyota Toyota debuts in 1986 in AJW. She is an original um, AJW, um, AJW competitor, and her first match happened against uh, a young lass called Erica Shishida. Um, can anybody tell me where we're going to see Erica Shishida on the Big Edge Podcasting Universe card? She's uh, Arja Kong, right? She is, in fact, Arja Kong. So these two go way back, right to their very first year, because Arja Kong debuted around about the same time. And despite all of that, Maria Toyoda won AJW Rookie of the Year that year. Now, 1986 is a banner year in terms of the talent that AJW turned out. They obviously think a lot of her, um, but for various reasons it doesn't last. But in 1988, so she's only been going a couple of years, she very quietly let go. And she's one of those people, along with Megumi Kuda, who we spoke about in this episode, idols and popular culture and the like. Um, Megumi Kuda one of those people who didn't get out of the who didn't get out of the AJW sort of doldrums. These were people who obviously were brought in with a lot of potential and then were very quietly let go. There's probably a lot of different reasons for that. Some of them, you know, maybe along the lines of the current NXT, apparently you've got two years and then you're out if you're not ready for TV. It might be that kind of thing. Um, but don't really hear from. Do bear in mind that our historical record is relatively limited because it depends on which really committed people on the internet have decided to go through an update cage match. That's basically the major source of information that we have for this period. At least if you're speaking English, I appreciate I have a massive language barrier. If anyone knows more than us, please get in touch with us. We're always happy to share that detail. But as far as I can make out, she kind of goes quiet for a little while and reappears in 1990 when our good friend Atsushi Anita invites her to join FMW. So she joins in a stable called The Outbreakers is Megumi Kudo and um, she turns heel a few months later, goes very punk, and that's when she takes the name Combat. Mm-hmm. So Combat Toyota kind of springs into life at this point. And the thing that you're going to notice when you look over their careers is that Megumi Kudo and Combat Toyota are pretty much entwined right from the beginning, right to the end of their careers. And obviously, you guys know very well that the exploding bad death deathmatch between Megumi Kudo and Combat Toyota that happens in my dicks is... Toyota's retirement match. Mm-hmm. They absolutely, they belong together. They have this long and storied history throughout their career. They've been separated out at Big Egg specifically. Number one, because I think they each fit in different slots on the card when you think about the themes that we've been talking about. But also because they really, they both absolutely deserve that spotlight and they can both absolutely fill these 
who we kind of featured high profile spots on the card. Combat Toyota is winning a women's championship and then she she forms a stable in 1991, which includes Reggie Bennett, who we saw earlier in the initial match with Chikisa Nagaya. Yeah, that's uh, correct. Really yes. early on. Not really early on in the context of the show. Many moons because, ago. <laughs> I mean, in the context of this podcast, yes, many, many moons ago. In the context of Big Egg, probably just about four hours. <laughs> <laughs> a trifle. Long enough. It's a WrestleMania. It's a WrestleMania where we all complain that WrestleMania's gotten too long these days. Yes. That's how long ago this probably was in the show. This faction that gets formed by 1992, it's split. Combat Toyota reunites with Megumi Kudo. They become a tag team. These guys are having incredible inter-promotional Joshi matches from sort of 92 onwards. So you're getting to this point where you have a lot of your inter-promotional feuds going from really middle of 1992 all the way up until Big Egg. So you have all of your, your Dream Slams in 1993. There's usually um, involvement from Kudo and Toyota in those matches. So they have the first inter-promotional Joshi tag match, and that becomes Toyota and Kudo versus um, Paul Nakano and Akira Hokuto. Oh, boy. Yeah, and seriously, I think that one's on YouTube. I'll include a link to it in the show notes if I can find it. I think if it's the one I think it is, it's an absolute banger. And I believe actually Kudo and Toyota headlined the first Dream Slam as a tag team. Um, I did. I think against um, Minami Toyota and Toshio Yamada. So even though there was the huge Kandori Hokuto match, the really famous one, like it was the outsiders from FMW in the tag match that were chosen to headline. And I think that sort of, well, it's testament to their status not just within their own promotion as, I mean, by far the top two women in FMW's history, whatever, you know, you may say for the likes of Shark Tsuchiya and Bad Nurse Nakamura, um, but you know, also their status within, you know, Joshi as a whole. Yeah, so in 1993, eventually Toyota kind of turned heel again, formed a delightfully named stable called Mad Dog Military. <laughs> <laughs> that is complete. That is completely like an Idaho militia. <laughs> I, I was going to say it's very Falls Road Belfast, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. That as well. Well, that's a scary thought. So <laughs> the main point to take away from this is that Toyota and Kudo are in many ways the defining forces in each other's careers and probably in each other's lives as well when you look at what was happening at that point. Um, they kind of have this I think of them as being like a Kevin Steen and El Generico, you know, these people who've just been yes. circling each other for their whole careers. And I think it's really exciting. So, yeah, so she turns face in 1994. She is a face by the point of Big Egg and pretty much ever after, to be honest, because at this point she's very established. She's very much kind of one of the top women in FMW and more broadly. Um, so in spring 1996, as mentioned, it's Kudo who retires her. And when you look at her in terms of her sort of legacy for Joshi as a whole. Nobody in FMW had long title wins, but she had quite a lot of short ones. So there was a lot of hot shotting, especially between Toyota and Kuda, but also with other people getting runs as well. She was always a big deal. And when you think about Kuda being the one who goes into another very high profile match on this show, um, she's squaring off against Cutie Suzuki and Takako Inoue, and that's an incredible match. This is Combat Toyota being brought in to be the FMW is pulling out the big guns in this match. So compare and contrast that with Yumiko Hata. Yes, I was going to say this is kind of interesting because, I mean, the, the V-top tournament is very much an all-star lineup and certainly with the uh, benefit of hindsight. But if you look at the AJW names, Yumiko Hata is definitely uh, the least of them in terms of first status and actually, I guess, lower in the hierarchy than some of the, the big stars from the company who weren't in the tournament. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting as to, like, you know, how Hotter ended up here. You know, what was, what, what was her deal, Sarah? 
she she's actually been around for a similar amount of time because she debuted in the class in 85 so she's a year above her um she's a year above her opponent here they well have known each other i do wonder whether they did but there would have been slightly different pathways and their careers have absolutely diverged so while combat theoda was being let go and sort of going off and finding her own way otter was winning early titles actually so she was a tag champion as part of a 12-day transitional reign with a young Hisako Uno. She also won some tag belts with Sako Inoue. So, you know, all these people who kind of keep turning up and are constantly in each other's orbits over a period of many years. In 1994, she had actually won the Japan Grand Prix. So she's a relatively big deal at this point. She's having a good year. But she hasn't always been that way. And I think it's interesting, especially when we look back with the benefit of hindsight, big names in AJW. Paul Meccano, at this point, is your returning ace who held the belt for two years, went off and has had all this success internationally and has come back in as a smiling face whom everybody loves by the point of this show. Arja Kong, the champion, has been the champion since what feels like the dawn of time is in a three-year title reign. Akira Hokuto never won the major title, as you know we'll discuss later on, I hope, but had always been pretty much one of the most universally respected, one of the biggest names in wrestling full stop certainly in japan and you've got manami toyota there's pretty much a whole sort of tier of wrestlers who would have been the aces of whatever promotion they'd found themselves in if they hadn't been born at the same time as these guys basically and i think yumiko hotta is one of those people i would also put in that list toshio yamada yeah absolutely um, probably mariko very... yoshida yeah both very very yeah Bill. yeah i mean we talked about kumiko makawa earlier on and she's someone who later had runs with the with, with the red belt in ajw yeah. she literally had to wait for everybody else to leave yeah that was like she was like the ace in the down period which is like you know kind of a bit of a pyrrhic victory yeah exactly like sort of ecw in like sort of late 2000 2001 yeah carino and yeah it's the you know it's the classic kind of queen of the ashes type of thing um where her background is in karate and she's always been interested in martial arts. So she had them. Um, it was 1997 before she had her first uh, Valley Tudor slash the whole bad fight. Um, but she has pretty much she's earned her reputation. A lot of her reputation, I think, has really grown in the aftermath of this show and in what Joshi has become during the rest of that time. Um, because she is now known for training, getting involved in all sorts of really weird fights. Um, <laughs> Can we? When are we going to talk about the most famous Yumiko Hotter fight, Sarah? Just as soon as we said that. So Hotter <laughs> is loyal to all the way through until 2003. Then she quits and goes to Arsian, which is another promotion. Goes freelance after it folds. She ends up in all kinds of odd places. It has to be said. Yumiko Hotter's career goes all over the place. She obviously now runs her own promotion. Um, she was the leader of the freelancers team who appeared at the Assemble shows during lockdown in Japan. <laughs> Put um, some respect on the name of T-Hearts. <laughs> that's what they call them. <laughs> they were a team of freelancers who were defined by not having a team. There will now be a brief interlude where we talk about <laughs> the most recent Yumiko Hotter mixed martial arts. I've been fight. I've been waiting to I've been waiting to talk about this. So I, I think we may have mentioned it in the uh, episode where we talked about Shinobu Kendall. I can't quite recall because it was so long ago. But yes, let us talk about Yumiko Hotter's MMA career and in particular Yumiko Hotter's recent MMA career. So um, the story the story begins in a young startup MMA promotion called Rising. Now in Rising. Uh, they they are not averse to the odd freak show fight, shall we say? And one of their big stars, as all in the early years, was a 
very large uh, Brazilian judoka called uh, Gabby Garcia. And they booked her for a fight against Shinobu Kandori, who at the time was in her 50s and a sitting member of parliament. Um, and then uh, Kandori picked up an injury during training. Now, I, I for one, would never cast any aspersions on the veracity of such an injury. Um, but anyway, it turned out Kandori wasn't going to do the fight. And so rather than get anyone who had, say, recently competed in MMA within the preceding 20 years, they decided to sign up Kandori's uh, fellow uh, Joshi veteran, shall I say, uh, Yumiko Hotta. Now, if you ever wanted to see an MMA fight where one of the competitors runs the ropes at the start, I can uh, recommend this to you. <laughs> if you also want to see an absolute demolition job in MMA, again, I can recommend this to you. For no other reason can I in good conscience say, watch this fight. It is, however, extremely funny. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a work of art. It is absolutely incredible. Everything about it is 10 out of 10. Absolutely no notes. Because obviously it starts with Shinobu Kandori wanting to fight Gabby Garcia, because of course she is, because she's a head case who thinks she's mega hard and can beat anyone, and then realising, oh wait, I'm 50 years old and can definitely not beat Gabby Garcia. Oh, my leg! Um, <laughs> and then they've got, all right, well, you know, what are the crush gals up to? Can we get any of it? No, 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 they are, no they're not doing anything. All right, okay. What What is bad nurse Nakash- in Nakashima doing? Is she, is she busy now? Yes, yeah, she's busy now. Oh, well, Yumiko Hota, is she available? Oh, well, uh, yeah, she, she's got a signing event, but she says she'll cancel it for us. Get her booked. Get her booked now. What I presume buddies. Bill Nicano was, <laughs> yeah. was working a shift at the pub that weekend. <laughs> and then, or, or like play, play, hitting a swift 18 holes at the local links. <laughs> as much as this sounds like an absolute de- demolition job, and let's face it, it was. Yumiko Hota's record is now 5-5. Five and five. So she got, yes, she got knocked out by Gabby Garcia. Um, but let's go back to back in the 90s. So in 1995, after Big Egg, LLPW runs its ultimate L1 tournament. So again, Shinobu Kandori thinking that she's really hard and just basically planning tournaments around Shinobu Kandori looking really hard. Um, Yumiko Hata qualified for that tournament. She got to the semis, at which point she was submitted by another absolute tank of a terrifying woman, Svetlana Gundarenko. Oh, don't you worry. You fuckers are going to hear about Svetlana Gundarenko when we get to that part of our Soviet Union. David's got an infinite jest length spiel ready to go about her. <laughs> our lady and saviour, yes. <laughs> she trained She trained Sari, amongst others. Um, so Sari is obviously now Sarah in NXT. Um, but at one point, she was the uh, one of the bright lights of Joshi outside of the kind of the stardom umbrella yeah. yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean hot i saw a hot uh, the most recent hotter match i've seen i think this is um i don't know if it's the most recent match of hers i saw but like a few years ago she had a match in diana it was a triple threat between her jaguar yakota and cherry and it's the most in- amazingly lazy performance by a veteran wrestler i've ever seen it's the astonishing. the finish is yakota pins cherry and hotter is literally on the apron watching it happen and just going oh, i'm breaking that up i fancy getting the back to be honest it's so good <laughs> I, no, I, I don't want to sort of throw any allegations as someone who was threatened with legal action after a podcast I did on part of this. So I'm not one to throw allegations about. However, I, I, I do think that much like our club's accounts, um, if you were to go through it with a fine tooth comb, that five and four record before Gabby Garcia, 
I, I, I don't know how vociferous the combat is. It feels very much like Jack Swagger. I'm pretty <laughs> sure his last MMA fight was against a guy who worked in an abattoir. Um, <laughs> like, I, I'm, I, I, yeah, I definitely want to see some due diligence done on what the, the sort of people that, that Yumiko Hotter was, was, was nailing um, in her five wins. <laughs> Japanese MMA may not be on the up and up more on this shocking scoop as it develops. You know what? As it as it pertains to the match that we are about to talk about, this first match in the first round of the Beatop tournament, the main thing to take away from this is that Yumiko Hotta is, although she is not, you know, by any stretch an accomplished professional fighter at this point, she is fundamentally someone who is doing the martial arts training sees themselves as being a striker and generally quite a hard bastard. Um, and they're going against Combat Toyota, who is a hard bastard by virtue of being built like a tank and murderous. And those are you two, that, that's the setup for the dynamic of this match. Big, scary, face-painted, terrifying, you know, Combat Toyota. Um, basically, the bulldozer that is coming for Yumiko Hotta, and she is just trying to kick her way out of it, basically. Oh, yeah, it's a little Takada Vader um, dynamic. It's You've got a big person and someone who can kick real hard. You're never you're never going to get someone with the first name Combat who's a wallflower, are you? It's, it's <laughs> not going to happen. I, 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 I actually didn't know that... Um, her first name was uh, Norio. I'm I'm just imagining her rocking up at the AJW dojo, getting turned away. <laughs> but you you let Norio Totello in. It says no Norios are allowed one. Uh, 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 Mr. and Mrs. Toyota, it is a girl. We shall name her Combat. Yeah, um, I mean I mean the thing about Hotter as well. I mean if we if we just talk briefly about the um, uh, pre-match promos. I mean uh, yeah, when when uh, when you said that Hotter was part of the 1986 class, I was like Jesus, really? So she's been in the business all that time because. Oh, 1985, sorry. So even longer. She looks very, very earnest in her promo with a kind of uh, Chickas and the Gaio uh, feel like the sort of plucky young upstart who is just going to going to have a go of it uh, against uh, an overwhelming force. Uh, Toyota looks terrifying um, <laughs> sort of to, as her counterpart. But yeah, Hot is really giving it the sort of the uh, ingenue uh, kind of uh, kind of vibe with her, with her promo. I think it's also because in, in the way that she carries herself and in her styling as well. So her hair is, again, it does have an element of the chicken style in that she's very clean cut and everything. Um, but I think it's the fact that she has this kind of very, very short, well-kept, very tidy hair, which dovetails with the idea of her being, you know, a very practical, all business, you know, she's here to fight. But also I think it, it contains some images of that, or I think it's certainly reminiscent of this quite clean cut idea that people like, Jigson Nagayo had. You see her fight, and I don't think she necessarily wrestles like <laughs> No, no, not at all. Like, yeah, she comes out, her gear's very simple as well, certainly compared with uh, Toyota's. So there's there's nothing flashy about her at all. Uh, but I think the, the main thing about this match, um, uh, and uh, this is one of the, um, well, certainly, if obviously, we, we should not take Uncle Dave's ratings as canon, but he went four and three quarters on this. It's the opening match of the tournament, mind you. Um, and so they, they certainly, as two of the less heralded names in the tournament, they certainly put in the effort to uh, give this whole thing a hot start. I, I will say, before before we go into this, right, I think, I, I think it is important to clarify when I say this. I say this in the nicest way possible. I mean this is the highest comment poss- possible. 
this match is a fucking mess and <laughs> falls off a cliff within about 30 seconds and I love it for it. <laughs> oh yeah. It absolutely devolved into chaos. I mean, the kind of When you look at Combat Toyota and you see that she seems to have several haircuts at once, you know that there's a chaos <laughs> energy that's coming into this. And then this match constantly feels like it's going off the rails. Although I've got to say, I do think that at some point the pace eases off maybe just a bit too much for me. I think when you look at the ebb and flow of this, I feel like it's not the match that you think it's going to be necessarily all the time. No, it, no, it's not. But uh, I think I think David's absolutely, uh, absolutely right. And I think a lot of the very best AJW stuff, like in the same way that me trying to conduct my college orchestra through Hector Berlioz's Marche Hongroise, like, yeah, it's there, it's going well, but you get the sense it could just completely collapse into nothingness at any moment. But- this is held together with like that uh, green and yellow gas tapes that they use to kind of like, <laughs> like it, it, it honestly like within about 30 seconds you go into I want to say it's like a figure 40 sort of thing and yeah. um, I think uh, Hotter puts just a little bit too mustard on that hot dog right when she's, she's hitting her and Toyota's like oh alright is, is that is that how we're doing it alright this sounds like a laugh and then he just comes back at her and then yeah they just and then Hotter's like oh right okay she's coming back and why don't we just keep increasing this to like horrifying levels of intensity yeah why not fuck it and then yeah they just go at each other and it's yeah it's brilliant oh it's it's great like one of the first things that Hotter does in the match is the fucking Randy Orton punt on the ground um and like just as a thing like hot the the casual violence of Hotter's kicks like she will kick you from any angle if you're standing she will like kick you in the side if you are in a prone position she will just run up and boot you right in the temple that is uh that is uh completely fine and yeah the figure four spot is when you really get the sense that okay yeah this is what this is going to be they are just going to be wailing on each other very hard and uh and it's 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 great i fucking love it <laughs> well the combination basically is you get Toyota, Toyota basically sets the pace pretty much, doesn't she? So yeah. you get you get a lot of power moves. It starts really hot with that kind of back and forth, but then it, it really slows down, and that's what Toyota's consciously trying to do. She's slowing it down. She's trying to take some of the pace out of Hotter and try and basically try and kind of depower some of those strikes, I think, and stop Hotter from building up. Oh, oh yeah, she spends a lot of time working the leg. Like, um, I mean, she's she's not all about sort of strikes and big moves. Like, there's, um, I mean, the bit I I know the bit you mean, Sarah, when she kind of slows things right down with the slide headlock and she transfers it into a kind of uh, half crab uh, and then a full crab. But then she does this thing where she starts jumping up and down while she's doing the Boston crab. I was That's like, addictive. people, someone needs to steal that. Like, why don't more people do it? Why doesn't Jericho do it? I mean, I know the answer because his hips would crumble into dust, but um, you know, someone should bring it back. We mentioned before that Hotter has maybe a little bit of the chicks in the guy about her, at mm. least in, in appearance and bearing, if not in the way that she wrestles. Then when you look at her wrestle, you can tell that, you know, the 10 years difference during that time, Combat Toyota is so much more technically sound and she's doing so much more actual wrestling than dump. Yeah, yes, there would be. Did. Someone would already have been stabbed in the arm with scissors at this point of the match if yeah. Matsumoto was in it. It's the times in terms of kind of how well technically even the heels have developed and how far the style has evolved. Oh, yeah. And, and like it's it's uh, a mark of how adaptable Toyota uh, was because like this is not what you would call an FMW style match by uh, yeah. by any stretch. This is an AJW style match. There is quite an FMW energy to it though, in the same in the sense that 
you kind of watch it through your fingers, don't you? Oh, yeah, like, there is that. A lot of this, you watch it go, oh, my God, what is going to go next? Someone's either going to get brains or they're going to land in their neck and, like, crush their C5 or, you know, something like that. It, it's so I, I One of the things I, I love about FMW, and you don't really get it in modern wrestling now, is that sort of being on the edge of your seat, going, what's going to happen next? Like, and just being quite terrified that the next one's just going to be some horrid thing where you think, as we said, this could fall apart at any point. You don't really get it very often now. The the, the closest we got, I think, it's going to sound strange, and it's going to, it's a very on-brand one for me, but the, the Shane McMahon-Kevin Owens Hell in a Cell match yes. was, was very like that. Of you, you just kind of watch that, like, like a kid watching Doctor Who in the 60s from behind your couch going, oh my God, this is terrifying. This wasn't to that level, but there was a lot of it where I was going, this is just, it, it, has, it has, it seems we don't want to see, basically. And, but we do want to see them. And yeah, oh, it, it could get really, there's a lot of needle here. Um, there's a fucking sewing machine going on here when it comes to needle. <laughs> um it's yeah, and it, it, but it's great. I love that. I, I love that. It, it's a, it's a vibe that is incredibly hard to replicate, and you can't really, rep, you can't intentionally do it. But they, uh, they, they in this match, it is, it, there is a lot of AFMW energy in that because you don't know where it's going to go, and you think it could get ugly. It could kind of stay on the level. You just don't know. Okay, but I will follow this up by saying, in an FMW match. Are you ever likely to see the knee bar and then swing her around by it? Oh, that ruled so hard. Like again, like so someone, good. someone someone needs to nick this. Like get uh, get Cesaro doing it um, to some tiny fucker on AEW. Like um, Cesaro would do that. It would go viral and no one would give Combat Toyota the credit. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, such, such is the lot of the eighties uh, and nineties wrestling, isn't it? Speaking as someone who has two great knees, right? <laughs> I watched that and I was like, oh my fucking god, please stop doing this, right? I can feel my kit, my cartilage just wearing away. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to walk after this match. I'm no, telling you. Yeah, I, I think part of it actually, speaking of people doing horrendous amount of damage to to, to legs is that um because um i think part of the the sort of wild nature of this match is occasioned by the fact that yumiko hotter loves a spinning wheel kick and she will try to hit that from anywhere including the top rope and uh sometimes uh she does it off the top rope and doesn't go so great so there's this bit like la- there's a, a bit a bit later in the match where she she misses the spinning wheel kick uh, well she kind of does, does she miss it <laughs> she, I, I was gonna say i think she connects with her in some sort of abstract she didn't fashion. get all of it as my no. would say <laughs> oh, exactly but then she goes up and does it again and it, it, it and it looks perfect but like that's that's kind of the thing and what i love about um toyota's spinning wheel kick because you see someone like um uh Veni, for instance or takumi aroha they do the spinning wheel kick and it looks fucking amazing. It's absolutely perfect. They do this great arc through the air. Hotter is just, there is nowhere. She is just, it is the Temu Enziguri of spinning wheel kicks. She's just fucking <laughs> throwing herself at her opponent. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's all just her launching herself with gear abandon, isn't it? And it's just, we'll see what happens. You know, might go well, might not. Um, but it's, I honestly think that the missed kick makes this match for me yes. like it was the moment where i was like 
this is such a bin fire, but I love it for being such a bin fire. And like, yeah, I, I said, like, oh, of course you miss it. And it, maybe it's a sign of, I, I, I don't want to sound like a total snob here when I say this, maybe it's a sign of a good wrestling fan that I can look at that and go, that adds to the match, as opposed to being one of these fucking goblins who are like, oh, she fucked up. Yeah, she did, and it was great, and it added to the match. Like, oh, not ever, yeah. not everything is crystal. Like, actually, nothing in this match is 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 perfect. Do you know what I mean, there's nothing in this is executed absolutely flawlessly, and that's why it rules. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as our as our friend uh, Luke Healy um, often remarks in his uh, rather wonderful newsletter, his month um, in wrestling. I would uh, very much encourage you to subscribe to that. Uh, he has argued that. The really great wrestlers can be identified by the fact that when they fuck up, it's how they get out of it. And I mean, take, for example, the uh, the famously fluffed springboard Rana in the great Sasuke Jushin Liger match. And then Liger so sarcastically applauds Sasuke for falling fat in his face, gets Rana anyway and gets rolled up. So they turn the botch into one of the most memorable finishers, uh, finishes in the history of, of wrestling in Japan. That's what you can do. And so, like, yeah, if, if a match isn't perfect, like... It, it 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 doesn't matter. Hell, watch watch a, like UFC fights, uh, like UFC heavyweight title match. People just going in with wild haymakers in the uh, in the later rounds because they're fucking gassed. Like, yeah, it it does happen. It, it doesn't matter. I think what I like about this match, even though you constantly have this kind of chaos energy about it, about the fact that it could fall apart at any minute. You've also got all these signs of kind of real invention and creativity, and there's some really cool spots in there in amongst all of this. You know, so we've talked about some of the ways of like eking maximum pain out of the submissions. You've also got things like so amongst some of Hotter's kind of comeback spots, you get some really interesting stuff. Um, she gets Toyota basically in the tree of world, like hanging down from the turnbuckle on the outside. Yes, which and is a much one, better way of doing it. Yeah, and number one, it's a really sensible, logical way of getting somebody into the tree of world. I mean, insofar as any of these things are sensible or logical, exactly. at least you can. <laughs> You can see how they got there. You can see how she ended up hanging by her legs off the outside of the ring, you know? It's really cool. It's a really cool spot. It makes sense of how the Tree of War happens. Gets her in the Tree of War, just starts kicking her in the head because yes. she's there and she's prone and it's obvious. Like, that's a really cool spot that you don't see very often now. Yeah, she, she's not there, like, trying to do a, a double stomp from the top rope that, like, clearly doesn't connect. Yeah, like, and, I mean, but Hotter, like gets there and starts chucking Toyota around she gets some really impressive kind of hope spots and she gets some kind of really good power moves as well because she's talking about she's chucking Toyota around gets her onto the announce table yeah you know, she gets her up for she gets her up for all kinds of moves eventually and there's a when we get into kind of the the near finishes and like the desperate attempts to end this match which is kind of what we're coming to at this point mm. she gets some really good moments and actually the storytelling's there it's just that it comes in disguise of a train that's on the rails but how sturdy are the rails and are the rails going to get it to the station <laughs> yes i mean like one of the things i remarked upon to sarah because just before recording because it was ages since we actually watched this match the first time i made our notes um when we first attempted to uh, to record this episode um one of the things i said is that because there's quite a lot of near falls in this match probably more than you would get in like some of the other matches on the card and i said to sarah like i think the psychology of this match you could show this to anyone who's into your sort of work rate matches nowadays and with like all your, your tons of near falls and counters and stuff like that. And they would instantly recognize this as the kind of thing 
that you know this match is really kind of I'm not going to say ahead of its time because there were other matches like that like this back at that time as well but it, it's the sort of thing that you see a lot of nowadays just like it uh, it slows at the start it builds to a crescendo and suddenly they are doing all sorts of just heinous shit to each other <laughs> um, just wanted to mention how it isn't near false here when when she kicks out or more to the point she doesn't really kick out there's at least like three pinfalls but she just doesn't kick out and the referee just kind of stops <laughs> like, um, and you could put kick out, so yeah. I, I don't know if you like it's a fag paper between like her shoulder and the mat in terms of her kicking out, like on on at least two where she just kind of when when you kind of wake up in the middle of the night and you need to go to the toilet and you just kind of go Argh. and then you you kind of recalibrate yourself for a minute before you go to the toilet, like that was the way she was kicking out, and again the referee done a great job to kind of sell yesterday because a lot of the time when that when that sort of thing happens where it's so so close the referees can kind of go about ah, and then they'll, they'll go out too early they'll pull out too early or whatever or do you know what I mean but it, it didn't happen in this case and I really like the fact that Hotta is kind of so fucked that she she can't really spend the energy to kick out oh, yeah, but I anything guess. beyond just sort of a twitch of the death nerve yeah. to kind of get herself off and yeah I, I really really like that about this whereas there's various other matches where they kind of don't really kick out and they just say they did and you're like oh it worked here it oh, really absolutely. worked I mean I'm, I'm not bloody surprised that she was struggling to get out from like I mean uh, the big splash off of the top rope um, get get that on your graph uh, for the uninitiated Sarah is plotting a, um, a, a X and Y axis chart of uh, airtime and distance uh, for frog splashes. Uh, Essentially, not... it's the pull compass meme, but for frog splashes. Yeah. And it's it's a thing of absolute awe and beauty. So basically, it's distance by distance vertically by distance horizontally. And I essentially have this feeling about frog splashes in particular. I'll accept other types of splashes, but we're using the frog splashes on North Star here. Basically, they should belong to either one of two camps. Either they should be in the absolute top right hand corner of my graph with the Montez Ford of travels halfway across the ring, 10 feet in the air, whatever it is, absolutely top tier, the man is flying. That is a perfect flash. The other type of perfect flash is the kind that Combat Toyota does right here, where there is no air, there is no distance traveled, she just picks off the top rope and goes directly down like a sack of shit onto a poor unsuspecting opponent. Yeah, we've basically that got is like the meaning of life. She is in the uh, Natsuko Tora slash Ruaka quadrant, like yeah. the, the least aerodynamic wrestlers in stardom. Yeah. Like that's the uh, that's where Toyota is here. Yes, you have to be one or the other. Everybody in between is a little bit half-assed, but those all the time, all day, here for it. Yeah, it's it's it, 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 it's it's so good. At least like, anyone kicks out of that because Toyota's built like a tank, and that's just all of her body weight going directly onto you. I, I mean you that but... that makes it especially impressive when Hotter gives her the Tiger Driver. Um, not not once but twice actually. And the Tiger Driver, I mean, you're basically lifting someone by their arms. It's not a natural lift by uh by any stretch. And that second one, she has her up for a good while before she drops her for it, I was like, bloody hell, like yeah. a strong woman. That first tiger drive, yeah. the order kicks out at one. Yes, yes, she does. And then <laughs> the second one, she keeps her there for like a couple of seconds, just enough to show off. I was like, you know what, fair play, because like, yeah, on one hand, like 
you're clearly absolutely fucked on the other hand you're like you're doing all this stuff like it's it's this is like sort of like um woman lifting tree off uh, the crushed pram with her baby inside kind of levels of strength well it is because you've got the path forward throughout where on the one hand yes Potter is so knackered that she can barely kick out but then on the other hand she's getting up and delivering these massive power moves and that that inconsistency can kind of take you out of a match like this but i think in this case once you've already accepted that this match is just fucking insane, I think it's much easier to go along with that. I'm pretty sure at one point Toyota completely misses this back elbow she's trying to do off the middle rope. Yes. Like I, I do not think it connects in any way. They sell it anyway, they carry on. Like There are tiger drivers, there's a massive power bomb. there's this really tight-looking backslide where Toyota gets Hotter into it, and then Hotter just about kicks out, and is so visibly relieved, she then starts playing to the crowd and going, uh, and, and basically sighing with relief in front of them to get them on board, because she can't believe that, she kicks out that, either. That kind of sells the desperation as well, because like, I'm just going to say, I don't think wrestlers built like Combat Toyota need to be doing backslides, <laughs> like, but the fact she's doing it is is great, because it, it shows she's she's having to pull all of the tricks out of her, 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 her arsenal. We've gotten into the what do I have to do to beat this woman yeah. category and it kind of it goes from I'm gonna destroy your knees into what do I have to do to kill this woman yeah really quickly actually that it kind of turns on a dime and then you just need to talk about the fact that that was a straight jacket German suplex off the top row that Yumiko Hotter gave to combat Toyota and which Toyota took pretty much straight on her head. Oh that that's the worst move in the match right like it's, it's, I mean, yeah. it's pretty vile. First in terms of probably most sloppily executed and mm. why were they doing it in the first place? <laughs> yes. On the other hand, it got such a huge pop from me, guys. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, straight jackets, suplex, like, I mean, you're not really able to protect yourself um, if your arms are literally pinned to your side. Like, it's... Yeah. No, there's no protection. I, I mean, it's brilliant. I, I kind of I want to pause at a theory when you're talking about sort of inconsistency or not kicking out and then using not being able to kick out and then using all these match strengths and moves you could put forward a case here to say that Hotter intentionally is kicking out as lightly as possible to save energy because she knows she's absolutely fucked and needs all the energy she needs to hit those big moves whereas like, there's no point and doing a fucking Joshi Bridge or something like that and kind of just making it even more of an effort for yourself where she's kind of expending... I'm getting into proper sports scene punditry here with this of just, like... Um, it, it really felt like, for me, when it came across the hot, I was basically... She was just throwing everything at Toyota and everything else was extraneous and she'd done the bare minimum she needed to do to make sure that she stayed in the match because she had to throw everything at basically trying to break come back to a spine, essentially. Yeah, I I know I know what you mean, David, because like uh, we've we've talked enough about Joshi Bridges uh, on this podcast, but like the Joshi Bridge is a flex, right? Like you don't have to kick out like that. In fact, it is much easier if you don't. It's just that you are you are doing it as uh, a gesture of defiance, right? And Hotter isn't even like um, able to do that. She's so completely focused on. But it, it's also um, the fact that Toyota is having to 
pull out all this all this stuff really sells uh, not just hotter stuff but the to- the tournament it's like wow i'm having to do all this stuff to beat the weakest person i can possibly face it's not quite make a tatamura hitting scorpio rising on cajun crawdad levels of overkill but like you have mentioned that more than once in this series it's it's my favorite thing i've ever seen live in wrestling it's so funny <laughs> like i think it Maybe in like every episode we've done of this, it's certainly at least half of the episodes we have done. Uh, I think you have I, mentioned I, this, and I, long may it continue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, w- while we're talking about kickouts, because um, like kind of now the bit, the big, the big move buffet has uh, ended, uh, we might want to get into something you often um, see on these interpersonal Joshi shows, and that is weird, possibly political finishes. So let us get into. <laughs> I, for one, am shocked and or stunned at this development. Yeah, not so, in my name. So let let's just uh, set the scene for you before we can uh, before we can pick it apart. So um, uh, Hotter is uh, kind of she, so th- this is the time after she fucks up the top rope spinning wheel kick, but she actually nails a second attempt at it, and then boots Toyota on the ground a couple of times, and the ref calls her off and starts a standing ten count, and um, so Toyota gets back to her feet at nine and Hotter kind of shoves the ref away and starts peppering Toyota with strikes at which point the ref literally picks Hotter up and carries her away like Scrappy-Doo is trying to is trying to punch someone and um, there is Scrappy-Doo energy in this whole thing yeah ab- absolutely and after that Toyota um, takes advantage of this with a German suplex after which Hotter kicks out just after three we're getting the fucking um, Terry Gordy AJW I don't want to actually put anyone over brother finish um, so I that both of those things had the smack of the political about it and actually um, this was the planned finish for Ali versus Anoki if you can believe that the idea was that Ali was going to be wearing an Anoki so much that the ref um, sort of pulled him off, not in that way, and then Anoki would hit a move and win. So like that's that's so literally this whole sequence has precedent within the word world of Puro as a weird political finish, like you know twenty odd years before uh, before this. But like we we've got to like kind of say that this finish it was kind of meant to protect Hotter against the outsider, right? There's no kind of question really in my mind that that could be the case oh absolutely it's a way of having her lose without really making her look bad no. i think toyota comes out of I... it the way that she needs to um i think hotter doesn't necessarily come out of it any worse no absolutely and like the, the idea that hotter could have won if the ref hadn't uh, hadn't stopped the, the 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 whole kicking too much ass finish like it's that mm-hmm. this might sound really really stupid right i didn't even think of it as a political finish right I, I totally forgot. And when you mentioned that, yeah, that makes so much sense now that that's happened, right? But I just went into it of, this is such a mad, you know, obviously, like, right from the start with the needle, they set up really, really well because they were like, you know, there was one, was it one of the figure, yeah, like, during the figure four, whatever, and they slap each other and, like, shout, shouting each other and, like, trash talking stuff that were clearly, they're just, go, they're, there's always a bit too much argy-bargy in this, right? properly it is an aggro fest and like they're throwing mad shit at each other and basically try to kill each other where i'm kind of like this makes total sense that hot is like throwing the kitchen sink she's got to it down i thought toyota sold it really really well it was a very very rare moment of toyota when you look at toyota's face and toyota's like protect me like she, she's like and you're like oh fuck like hot is going absolutely ham here and like you see a, a moment of vulnerability in Toyota, 
and the referee jumps in at that point and moves the hotel away and I'm kind of like that made so that made so much sense to me in in the, in the sort of structure of the match because it is so mad that Hota has just kind of been consumed by this and trying to kill Toyota that like she's kind of taking it to the limit and uh, to the point where even Toyota's like right come on lads let's calm it down a little bit <laughs> and then the referee's having to step in and then Toyota goes ah fuck it why not and just and, and then just does the finish. It, it makes sense. It is a very good political finish, but I didn't even think of it in that way. I just thought this is just a bit of a, a an aggro match, and uh-huh. like how hot it is, literally so hot that she's like, ah, we're just going off on one, and then it kind of costs her. I love that you went into this so innocently minded that you went into an interpromotional match <laughs> on the biggest interpromotional women's wrestling show that Japan has ever seen. And didn't think of it as a political finish. Yeah, I, I think actually it's. I don't want a fucking rib, man. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think like in a vacuum, yeah, probably this finish isn't isn't that strange. But like, look, when you are as I am conditioned by years of you know watching, uh, you know, assemble and uh, marvelous versus Sendai and everything that Rossi Agawa has ever been in, involved in. Like, you are, like... Tanahashi so... crushing every ROH person he ever faced in about <laughs> yeah. five minutes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You are so attuned to this kind of thing if you watch professional wrestling in Japan for any length of time. So, and, yeah, obviously, they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. AJW is the big promotion. But, like, I don't for one... I don't for one second look at this match and see... Hotter go down to a German suplex against this massive woman who's one of the top stars of FMW and think that she looked, uh, you know, she looked bad in defeat, um, like uh, quite, quite the opposite, in fact. But, you know, uh, what are you going to do? Um, they, they do they do play it off a bit where Hotter gets into it with the ref afterwards, as you might expect. So there's a good, good little bit of afters there. And uh, she looks, <laughs> I, I know we've said this about a lot of the wrestlers, but she looks so sad in the loser's enclosure. <laughs> she can barely get her words out. Oh, she's basically monologuing. Yeah. She's basically, obviously, I don't speak a word of Japanese, but it feels like she's giving a soliloquy. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised she even cut a promo. I thought she was just going to start crying and say like three words and then fuck off. I was surprised she actually strung out like a paragraph talk about the match and yeah you, even though you can't understand it you know exactly what she's going through like you know exactly what she's saying to summarize where this match is overall i just i feel like it has a different energy to what you to, to, to what's been on the card before it and to what comes afterwards in the sense that it's the so it's the first match of the tournament it comes directly after that kind of really weird mariko yoshida versus Suzuki match mm. that we talked about you know back when the world was young so it's a very different very different feeling and basically it it's almost like they've had to lay down, okay, we're going to do the fighting now. I enjoyed it for what it was. I don't think I liked it quite as much as David. No, I mean, I, I don't think this is going to be um, pushing, like, my top five matches on the card, possibly even in the tournament. But, I um, mean, it, uh, it, uh, it was certainly a good time and a fitting way to kick off the show. And actually, this is a good point you make, Sarah, in that the fact that this does, yeah, it's certainly different from the uh, Yoshida Blizzard Yuki match that we've had before. But also, I think one thing that you'll see across, uh, you know, when we talk about these matches, this episode and the next episode, is they really go to a lot of effort to differentiate the four first round matches from each other psychologically. Like, they're all very, very distinct. There's, um, you know, sometimes AJW gets, 
I, I think people say that it has a house style. And I don't think that's really accurate. I think people just mean the way Minami's photo wrestles. <laughs> but um, like, uh, you know, there, there is there is something to it sometimes if you watch a lot of this stuff. But like in this tournament, and I think it helps having the outsiders as well, they can all bring something uh, different to the table because the next match we're going to uh, consider, uh, match number 15 on the show, is also a match in which a much bigger woman faces a much smaller woman and yet it has a completely different vibe uh from from this match like it's 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 like night and day um so let us get into that match the second and final one that we are going to cover in this episode the first of our multi-part look at the VTOP tournament this is another interpromotional match it features LLPW's Eagle Sawai as the outsider this time against uh, someone we've already mentioned on this episode and numerous others for she is one of the foremost legends of women's professional wrestling worldwide, and that is AJW's Akira Hokuto. Um, so I just want to say by, before we got, uh, get into this, by the way, in the historical background, that while I was searching for this match on YouTube, I came across a video which was just called 10 Minutes of Eagle Sound Effects, and I was quite tempted to review that instead. I may stick in at the end. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> if you if you can if you can listen to all ten minutes of that, then we'll give you the password to the Twitter account. <laughs> no, for the love of God, do not promise that. Genuinely, yeah. it was bad enough. Obviously, since we last recorded this, we have had a we, we have had um, a a death of a monarch and a state funeral. And let me tell you, R.I.P. King I Charles. Um... <laughs> You're with Dave. <laughs> I just want to say, I'm just more concerned about people having access to their own Twitter accounts than oh, I was. Li- literally, literally, David and I did say, right, we're going to just, um, just in case, um, the, you know, the Twitter mods get ban happy. I mean, there's not much fucking chance of that now. But like, um, it, just, <laughs> just in case they do, let's just have a moratorium on bad taste posting for, you know, at least a, a few days. Um, David, while technically staying within the spirit of this, um, <laughs> and I'm very glad this didn't get traction actually, but uh, I find it very funny, which was um, that the, the, the palace was going to make an announcement at 6 p.m. Um, and everyone was kind of, like, OK, like the Queen has obviously died because the newspapers are all wearing black ties and looking very solemn. Like, mm. clearly something's happened. At one minute to six from the our Twitter account, David just links to the video for sap time. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be a final statement of defiance before like the, the 10 day monitor. And then George was like, mm. I was like, if it gets if it gets double figures of likes, we're deleting it. <laughs> Don't worry, we're saving the really noxious stuff about the Queen for the Christmas special. <laughs> Can we just move on and talk about the only queens I really care about right now? Yes, we can. Sarah, yes, we can. about Eagle Sawai and Akira Hokuto. Start with Eagle Sawai. So, Eagle Sawai is an interesting case because we've talked about a few of the other promotions that have kind of proliferated in the 80s, kind of diverging from and responding to what AJW is kind of doing at the time. Um, Eagle Sawai is a JWP pretty much born and raised. So, she debuted in 19... 19- um, and she started her career in JWP. Um, I think it's interesting that she comes out with this big kind of feathery headdress and she's obviously very showy. But during that time of, you know, the incident, the feud um, between Jackie Sato and her entertainers faction and the wrestlers slash fighters that Shinobu Kandori was leading, that eventually then kind of broke away and founded LLPW. Eagle followed Shinobu to... LLPW and she seems to have spent you know large parts of her career there actually and so I think it's interesting you know Shubha Kandori wasn't necessarily against 
that idea of the showmanship um, she wasn't necessarily against any of the glamour of it but she really saw them as being fighters and Eagle Swipe sits in an odd spot in the promotion in that respect I think and I think it's worth bearing in mind that although she debuted in 1986 she's an early JWP edition she debuted the same year as Combat to Order and Aja Kong she's not really their sort of contemporary or she's not necessarily their their peer in terms of their power rankings in these promotions so she has held secondary titles and tag titles you know through the way 80s and 90s in these kind of lower level titles things really since that but she's kind of on her way up so obviously we're watching her now in another or llpw um, finally gave her a title in march 19- and then she went on to hold that four times so she is kind of on the up and up at this point multiple time tag champion eventually you know she is a big cheese in this promotion but what we have to bear in mind and I know we've talked about this with LLPW before is that everybody who works at LLPW who is not Shinobu Kandori is at some point going to take some pins so that Shinobu Kandori doesn't have to that is as true in the interpromotional wars as it is on LPW show. Yeah, I mean, right. that probably explains Eagle Sawai's presence in this tournament, uh, to be fair, because, you know, the other Joshi promotions, you know, um, JWP send their ace, uh, FMW send Toyota, who's like one of their top two, and like, you can't say Toyota wasn't the like the big single star of FMW's Joshi division. Whereas, you know, by rights, you know, this could well have been Hokuto versus Kandori again, but Pandori's probably not doing the job in the in the first round of the tournament. So so you get Eagle to Eye and that was kind of her role, really. Yeah, and I know we've kind of spoiled the finish of this show, but you know, I feel like we are spoiling a show that's nearly 30 years old. Yeah, oh, also who's, people know who's going yeah, also who's going into this match thinking that uh, Eagle Sawai is gonna beat Akira Okta, but as we'll come to, the the layout of the match kind of well, really nobody... goes to a lot of effort to make you think that she might. Can you imagine if Eagle Sawai had pulled out some sort of insane Ronnie Radford style <laughs> Senegal banana skin and knocked Hokuto out of the first round of her own yes, retirement tournament? There'd, there'd have been riots. There'd have been riots in the Tokyo Dome. I tell you, they would never have been able to run a show there since. If this had been WWE, they'd definitely have done that. Yeah, they would. <laughs> Fuck you, we already got your money, goddammit. They really would. And I mean, honestly, Eagle Sawai is in this tournament so that Shinobu Kandori can be in another match somewhere else on the card and win it. Yeah. So even though, you know, she is kind of a pre-established new in LLPW after Kandori for quite a lot of her career, there's always a gap. In anything that is that is booked by Shinobu Kandori, there's Kandori, and then there's a big gap before there's the next person. So she's kind of, she's the resident hoss of LLPW, and you see that from the way that she presents herself, and she's obviously, you know, she's, she's their resident big scary woman who's going to fuck you up so there's a lot she, there's a lot she has in common in terms of the way that she's presented and the way she's booked with a combat toyota or you know maybe even an aja kong except that she's just not really on their power level no i mean right? the gap between her and kandori very reminiscent of the gap between the most famous person to attend my school sir isaac newton and the second most famous person to attend my school who i think is probably a fellow called collie sibber who is widely known for being the shittest poet laureate of all time and carol Ann duffy has been the poet laureate I honestly thought you were going to say the second most famous person to come out of my school and then you were going to go me. Um, <laughs> well, look, look, we're, we're a podcast which isn't even famous enough to have a blue tick imposter. <laughs> I am probably at least the, the fifth most famous person in my school because he has got Stuart Bannigan, an actual Doctor Who, Manpreet, 
and about three other people as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm no <laughs> no use. I will say this: I am of all the people in the world who might be willing to pay eight quid to impersonate you guys and assassinate your characters. Like, I'm quite high on that list, and even I'm not willing to pay eight quid to do that. <laughs> the inside knowledge. You, know, the, you I, really... I say things that would end both of your careers before they've even begun. <laughs> what careers? Indeed. If anything, we, we fundamentally structured this so that we never have a career. <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 I'm hardly reigning in the big books in the lucrative field of blood sampling. <laughs> I mean, so just to go back very briefly, like just to give you an example of kind of the discrepancies in those power levels between them, she did actually have a match against Arjakong, and Eagle took multiple hurricanes to go down, so you know that spinning back fist that frankly could level a man. Um, she takes a lot of them to go down, but she still loses. A lot of her career during the interpromotional era was being the collateral damage mm. amongst the basically amongst the complex politics that David can clearly watch matches and be oblivious of, uh, oblivious to. Yeah, I mean, if I would recommend that match, by the way, and also if you want, if you're in the market for a good Eagle Sawyer match on, I, I can't remember which. Um, I think it was one of the Budokan shows, but it was a five-on-five elimination tag match, which was AJW versus LLPW, and on one side you've got. Eagle Sawai and a bunch of lasses, and then you've got Bull Nakano and a bunch of lasses. I mean, I say I, I think I think LCO among them, so you know they're not jobbers, but basically you've got one large woman and four small ones, and most of the match is just the respective large women beating on the smaller women on the other team. It's very very good. And uh, so that does for uh, Eagle Sawai, but um, Sarah Akira Hokuto, um, fifty minutes should do it. Maybe at a push, we'll cut some stuff. A, a diamond in the rough, um, an an underappreciated gem, you know, a real find for us, Akira Hokuto. It's nice to get her name out there in the Joshi circles. Friends, Romans, countrymen, you have heard me wax lyrical about so many things in Japanese professional wrestling. You have heard me use the words. Do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Saviour, Bull Nakano? You have heard me talk about the madness that was the pop cultural phenomenon of the Crush Girls. You have heard me lose my shit over Jaguar Kota. Akira Hokuto is the greatest professional wrestler of all time. And to explain how we got to this point, I need to go back to a young girl called Hitoko Una who loved the Crush Girls as a young teenager and was the president of the Bull Nakano fan club in the mid-1980s. <laughs> this, is, this is already amazing. This is one of my favourite, like, um, my favourite Joshi facts, is is just, like, yeah, someone who... And, and, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying, you know, the reason the talent level was so high is because people grew up idolising these wrestlers and, uh, you know, idolising someone to the extent that you, like, have a fan club for them and you are the president of it, yeah, that, yeah you're probably going to end up getting into the business. But the great thing about this is that Paul Nakano obviously debuted so young, she wasn't far off his Kawuna's age. They were they were essentially it was teenagers supporting teenagers at yeah. this point, because they were both in their mid teens. Um but so bitten by the bug of wrestling is young Hitoko that she quits high school, gets accepted to the AJW Dojo, debuts in nineteen eighty five and wins rookie of the year. She is committed. That'll show that crusty old Dean. In 1986, she is a junior champion. 
1987, she has a very brief tag title run with one Yumiko Hotta, and then has, goes on to have two more with Suzuka Minami. But part of what happened during that brief tag title run the two out of three falls match in which oh. they were intended to de- they were intended to defend their titles in the completion of the first fall Owen takes the pile driver and breaks her neck she wrestles the next two falls of that match in places holding her head on top of her neck uh, it's it's so grim at this point the legend of akira hokuto is born over the next several years she earns a reputation for being a woman wrestles like she has a death wish and she really does it's really hard to see anything else about this by 1994 when we grew up she has been all pacific champion twice but she's not gotten to the top she has been in all of these other places she's been in all of these other places she's clearly someone that they were ready to strap the rocket to really early on so why hasn't she had that kind of big run where she's kind of almost nailed on to win win the red belt at any point Partially, maybe because she has a death wish, but that style that she works and this kind of never say die kind of attitude that she really has basically means that she's injury prone, to say the least. As somebody who by this point has been several years after breaking her neck, that probably isn't a surprise. She is absolutely a top name in the promotion. She's universally respected for the fact that basically banger after banger after banger match over a period of years we have a DVD in this house that says something like um, Akira Hokuto, um, Greatest Matches, Volume 5, and it's entirely from the year 1993. Like, <laughs> yeah. The hits keep coming, and you could always rely on her for the kind of matches that put Joshi on a level where people like the wrestling commentariat were referring to it as being on a par with the men. It was her and the Nakanas and the Kongs and the Toyotas of the world that did that. But this this period of kind of injuries and constantly, you know, being hindered from getting to that final spot runs throughout her career. So in 1990, she was booked to win the Japan Grand Prix. So that would have been relatively early into her career, and it would have made her a, a huge name. She absolutely destroyed her knee on the barrier. She couldn't walk. She tried to bandage herself up and finish the match, but she couldn't. Um, by the time she came back, um, she'd got, she'd sort of grown out her blonde hair. She'd gone into the mid got into this new year and she took a, she took akira as her first name this is really coming back from that missed opportunity to really hit the big time is when she becomes akira she takes akira for akira maeda by the way guys fun fact um in 1991 and 1992 she earns the nickname the mummy because she is so permanently and so heavily bandaged that no one's really sure how healthy she is at any given time. Like, she just keeps turning up and she keeps wrestling these incredible matches. But frankly, she shouldn't. She's just bursting out of bursting out of cupboards backstage and lumbering after people down the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for real, though, she wasn't far off. In 1993, she finally won the Japan Grand Prix, so it was almost like she'd gotten back to where she should have been three years earlier. She gets this title shot against Aja Kong, who is your forever champ at the time. Um, but she got injured again. And then she requested that her match against Arja become a non-title match because she felt like it would hamper the prestige of the belt. She felt it would be somehow disrespectful for her to wrestle for that title when she wasn't kind of at 100% herself. That's the kind of level of respect that, you know, that she has for professional wrestling, but also that's the level of respect that other people have for her. Her legend is well established at this point, and I think a lot of people were waiting for her to finally have that moment. And then in late 1993, she leaves for Mexico, kind of 
nursing her wounds, both literally and figuratively. She goes to Mexico, she gets married. She spends most of sort of 1994 in Mexico, so she hasn't been in AJW for quite a while. She won the CMLL women's title in July 1994. She actually held that for two years, so she's an active champion in Mexico at this point when she's come back to Japan. Um, but the marriage didn't last, the marriage is breaking down, so she's coming back to Japan. Um, and as we talked about right at the beginning of the series, when we talked about the build-up for Big Egg Wrestling Universe, Akira Hokuto's comeback match is one of the primary marketing points of this show. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why everybody coming in knows that she's going into this eight-woman tournament where there's going to be three rounds, there's going to be a quarterfinals, a semifinals, and a final. No one expects Hokuto to lose at this point. What is the point of bringing her back and making such a big deal out of it if you don't? Yeah, because we- this is the woman that everybody is looking at and going oh my god we're getting three Akira Hokuto singles matches singles matches in themselves were very protected at this point because she was so injured she doesn't have many of them actually at this in 1994 and 1995 she is a huge deal at this yeah point. I think with the greatest of respect to Eagle Sawai um who I actually really like I think if this had been her only match on the show it would have been very much like Kurt Angle's retirement being against Baron Corbin <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely here endeth my immediate build-up to Akira Hokuto at Big Egg Wrestling Universe. We may talk a little bit after this match about kind of the aftermath and kind of what she goes on to achieve and, and how she ends up. I know you guys have talked about Hokuto a lot during the during the Pura Pre podcast, and uh, if you haven't already talked about the Kensuke Sasaki stuff in great detail, I am always willing what, to read. What do you mean, Sarah? We've never mentioned that anecdote at all on the podcast. Well, indeed. Can, can I can I just say, by the way, that um, I look, I've I've got my beef with Dave Meltzer uh, on a variety of. Uh, of Don't issues. we all? Yes, indeed. Right. But but I absolutely love that during his <laughs> gravity's rainbow length, <laughs> Antonio Inoki obituary, he somehow managed to shoehorn in the story about Akira Hokuto and Kensuke Sasaki waking up the whole hotel in Pyongyang with their shagging and deciding to get engaged the night they met. Like the the man is very much a man after my own heart in in respect of shoehorning the story into any situation, regardless of whether it's corporate or not. Well, you know what, R. Uh, R. Antonio Inoki, the man who gave us that anecdote by booking <laughs> the show in North Korea, on which Hokuto and Sasaki were booked. Because, yeah, I have to say, I didn't agree with Meltzer giving the sex eight three and three quarters, but, you know, I was at four and a half for me at least. Look, if, if $15 million of North Korean government funding had to go missing during the worst famine in their country's history so that Akira Hokuto and Kentuke Sasaki could get together and Inoki could win a show at the Rungrado Mayday Stadium, I, for one, think that is a fair price to pay. Oh, God, I didn't even I'm know. not going to lie, it sounds like a small fitly. Yeah. I, I'm not gonna lie. It's um, it's a small fat life category. It's very niche. Um, but <laughs> it is one I'm willing to support. Yeah, or we could uh, we could sort of save the rest of Hokuto stuff for you know, after a participation in the tournament's ended. Um, that like that's that's uh, that's a possibility because there's uh, there's uh, again spoiler alert. There's more Akira Hokuto to come in this tournament, everyone. Um, and with that in mind, maybe it's time to get on to uh, the match. So we're going to skip over the eagle sound effects. Unfortunately, I I have been outvoted on this. Um, but we are going to um, first, as we always do, talk about the uh, pre-match interviews. Uh, Hokuto is dressed all all in pink with a big fluffy headdress. She looks a bit like the lots of hugging bear from Toy Story Three, and um, the terrifying yes but terrifying and um there's a uh the eagle so i interview um my favorite piece is when the at the end of the interview the uh the interviewer just tells us to do our best 
which I think is very cute. And also, but like, you would never get, can you imagine like a pre-match interview before the World Cup and the, inter- the interviewer just says to Harry Kane, so you're going to go out and score loads of goals, aren't you? <laughs> like, it's do, journalistic objectivity, my friend. Do your best against Iran. <laughs> my heroes <laughs> so uh yeah but that's that's uh that, that's uh, that's that, that was very good stuff i enjoyed that um she's got this really like angry sinister like like scary face it's just in the middle of this sea of pink fluff which i think is just a fascinating visual and, in and of itself and sometimes you've got a fucking gas mask on as well so focused meanwhile eagle for wise also trying to be quite earnest and trying to be quite serious but she's wearing her frigging, like, complete eagle headdress and eagle gear. Instead of flapping around her face while you're trying to listen to her talk, it's actually oddly soothing. Also, like, I, I, I have a theory about this. I, I have a theory that I would like to pause it with you. Now, I've never done drag, right? Um, and stay well, with me on this. Stay with me on this, right? I've never done drag before. It would probably be a lot of fun, but I would say... For drag, the best costumes are basically to rip off AGW. Anything on this show yes. is a good drag costume. And I think if I had to do drag, it would be something off of Big Egg. Because it is, it, it, it's, it's everything I want out of it's It's garish, but it's powerful. And anyone, pick any costume out of this, except maybe like the child fighters or whatever. But... Any costume, but um, the the pink uh, Akira Hokuto one is is high up there. As is Eagle Sawise, to be fair, I did I did enjoy that as well. I think you can make a good a good drag outfit of that. But yeah, um, AGW is the the primo category away from the sort of repolification and turning LGBT people into absolute vodka adverts. And uh, this is pro- this is proper drag slash football. Uh, and, and and David Forrest will be appearing at Nice and Sleazy's next week in his drag persona of Alanis Vladikavkaz. <laughs> that, that probably would be by the other mother. It absolutely <laughs> would. It, it, just to confuse the, the Chinese government surveillance van next door. Um, <laughs> Allegedly. Um, so the um, I, I, I love the fact that there was a tabloid story which is almost certainly bullshit about there being a secret Chinese police station next to a venue where David and I have participated in the Simpsons quiz. Every time I go by it now I look into it it's it's shadily empty there's nothing in there it's but you just look every time people just look past it and they clearly know that everyone is like is this a surveillance station (laughs) it it kind of feels like a surveillance station (laughs) There's, there's nothing in there except the rigorous dialectics of Xi Jinping thought. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, I, I, th- I think I think you're right. Like the headdresses are great. Um, weirdly, when she makes her entrance, Hokuto appears to be she appears to be wearing the same outfit as as she was for the uh, interview, only in blue. I don't know if the lighting is it. Is it, is it like that fucking dress photo again? You know, the one where no, some people no. thought it was gold and white and like. It's actually your awake <laughs> Player two, Akira Hokuto. She's I got the away dressing room. I genuinely do think that she did a costume change, and I I fully believe that Hokuto was one of those people who spent half of her salary on gear because she kept doing these great great jobs. I mean, the thing that we're used to seeing with her, I think she would have been the only wrestler to spend half a salary on gear. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I walked into that. As I said it, I was waiting for somebody to make the joke about wrestlers spending money on gear. But since we're here, the thing that we expect from Hokuto is 
the image that we're used to is that white gear, which is under like the gigantic, terrifying, like black, like mm. ghost Miss Havisham sort of like all of the taffeta or all, all everything all over the place, like pure black. So seeing her coming out like coloring in this kind of colorful gear at this point almost kind of feels a little bit odd. But she had she had quite the fashion sense. She goes all out, I think, a lot. With oh, oh, like yeah, she's she's very visually striking and, yeah. and iconic. The other... I think she pairs yeah. a lot of the frilly, like over the top, basically the goth goth kid, but also able to commit grievous bodily harm yeah, because yeah, you know I, mo, mo, you know having, having been like the and having spent a sizable amount of time around like goths who bless them might have you know might look quite sinister but also fundamentally haven't had enough daylight yet to really be all that strong like Hokuto can come out in that basically like bloody undead bride type of stuff with apologies to Sue Young I do see the I, I see some parallels but also, like, she'll come out and her game face is on and she looks really serious. But she, you know, she mixes this kind of flair for fashion yeah. with also being really scary. And she comes out and, you know, despite the fact that this crowd is going apeshit for her, she comes out full regalia, just with a sword over her shoulder, just strides to the ring. Like, not really any engaging with the crowd, no soaking it up, because that's not what she does. She goes in, she looks at them, and basically becomes a murder machine. Yeah, and uh, the the one thing, the other thing I would like to say about the entrance before we uh, before we start. So we've mentioned at various points in this podcast series the the dubbed music, and in, in indeed both of the competitors in the previous match had music dubbed over their uh, regular themes. I I quite I quite liked the songs. I, this is what I love about uh, J Rock. Like even the generic stock music just has these incredible guitar solos. But Hokuto doesn't come out to some generic uh, music. What she does in fact come out to is this kind of midi kids bop version of uh, Oil Delay by Luis Miguel, which is her regular. <laughs> and it's like it's not like it's not like uh, even the the you know the Mitsuharu Misawa. Um, Coventry Skydome sparked an X rip off where they changed like the minimum number of notes legally. This is just a cover of Oil Delay, but it's like weird MIDI sounds. Like it's it's very weird. It's don't get me wrong, it, the song still absolutely slaps, but it's just in, incredibly weird to have her coming out with this uh, you know, this really impressive striking outfit on, and then there's just like these really this really tinny synth just accompanying her. I mean, I kind of love it, though, because you, you kind of go all in and the more videos from Big Egg Wrestling Universe you watch, like when the matches have been chopped up and put on YouTube, after a while, you almost kind of blind yourself to all of the things that are kind of shoddy about the production or things that don't quite seem right in the in the dub or anything like that, because you get kind of caught up in the energy of it. And I think I, you certainly do with this match. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm just throwing it out there. I would buy an album of the generic stock music from Big Egg Wrestling Universe. <laughs> I'm stunned there isn't a metal band just putting this sort of stuff. Like, I mean, you know how we always talk about how like there are so many moves in world of sport that no one is nicking these days. There's so many tunes in Joshi that no one is nicking these days that you could definitely get away with all of these riffs, and no one is doing it, and it's wild. Oh, I, I bet there is a band out there that's doing it, but they've never played a gig outside of Kanda Province or something like <laughs> there, that. There is there is a band called I don't know if they're still going, but um. Uh, there's a band called Monkey Flip, which um, they they they're a Japanese band, and there's some some of their stuff on YouTube, and they just cover Pearl entrance themes, and uh, they've actually got they've got a full fucking brass section for stuff like um, so they're playing Jumbo Saruta's theme, they're going did 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 little they've got like a full brass section doing it, like it's incredibly good. I know what you're asking, do they do um, 
Masahiro Chono's theme with the problematic bit at the start. Yes, they do. Um, so let's let's talk about let's talk about the match, shall we? Um, so it's interesting because so why kind of comes in. She knows that she's the underdog yeah. right from the start, um, but she goes directly in like she starts shoving her around. She tries to go straight into a power move because essentially she knows that Akira Hokuto is a, a scary, scary woman who is extremely dangerous. So she seems to have gone in with the hit her with everything you've got before she kills you. Oh, yeah, you've got to unload your entire clip in her right from the off. Like, it's, um, it's, uh, I know this is kind of the, the interesting dynamic because, like, and it goes back to what the interviewer was saying, do your best. Not something you should have to be saying to this fearsome woman who's, like, north of 200 pounds, uh, like, so physically imposing. And she is the underdog, but she is the underdog. Um, and the, and everyone knows it, which is why, you know what this match kind of reminded me of? And bear with me because this is a really counterintuitive uh, comparison even for me. But, you know, in about 2011, when they were still trying to portray John Cena as the underdog, and everyone knew that he wasn't, but that you you know that, that especially notorious I Quit match where it was literally 20 minutes of Cena being beaten on by The Miz and Alex Riley, hashtag push rage, and... Um, you know, and then Cena like comes back with a few moves and wins because they were going to so uh, you know so many much effort to persuade you that no Cena was the underdog when everyone and the grand knew that he is the top guy in the company. And when they figured this out a couple of years later and had Cena wrestling like he was the man, suddenly his matches became much better because they reflected the reality of the situation. I kind of got a similar vibe from that to this, like because Hokuto for all that we are putting her over as this as this amazing wrestler, she gets very little offense in this match, like for her status. Like Sawai um has really the bulk of the going in this. I think that I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think partially there's an element of you can you can tell the story to this audience who haven't heard much about her matches in Mexico over the year or anything. Um, and certainly it's a very different proposition when you come into the level of competition you've got there. You can tell the story that there's ring rust because your audience haven't seen Akira Hokuto wrestle. Um, you can also tell the story of she hasn't done this for a while and this woman's three times her size. And then you can also do that she hasn't done this for a while and this woman is three times her size and also most of Akira Hokuto's bones are made of dust. <laughs> yes. So I think you've got, there's a lot of reasons why you can... You know, some of the selling, I almost wonder how far they're leaning into kind of playing on people's injury fears with her. But there's also this, just this element of nobody really knows what to expect from a hockey term match at this point. I think most people wouldn't expect her to come back at less than 100% because that's the style that she wrestles. And even if she wasn't 100%, she would wrestle like she was. That's a big theme with her. But I think there is an element of just... Doctor also being famous for her ability to take punishment and keep coming back. And this match is really a, hey guys, you know how much you like Akira Hokuto? Here's everything you like about her. She's going to win now. And that is the dynamics of the match. Yeah, I think, I think that's actually a really good point. Like Japan is always very honest in terms of the way uh, comebacks are booked people do i mean famously kenta kabashi took the pin in his return match from kidney cancer <laughs> like it's such an emotional moment like, you're doing the job kenta you know that's how it goes so yeah i completely i completely get that uh, david sorry you were gonna say yeah i was it kind of felt like this felt like every randy savage wcw match <laughs> the ten, the, you think of the tenzan one from uh starcade 95 because i know i was and the and the, the main one from halloween havoc and i think he against nakanishi had one as well 
Um, at all his matches in WCW where this guy's going to kick the shit out of me for 10 minutes and then I will hit three moves, elbow drop, bingo, bango, bongo, one, two, three, Randy Savage wins. Every one of them. And it's not quite as um, grievous <laughs> in this. No, no, no. It, it, but it's, it's definitely... Not, um... Shock horror and Akira Hokuto match in 1994 was better than your average Randy Savage match from late 90s WCW. I know this may come as a surprise to you. <laughs> but this uh, this was, like, for, for all intents and purposes, this is basically a TV match that just happened to be on Big Egg. Like, if if they were in the sort of the, the weekly TV game, this would be, like, a match on a Raw to build up to the pay-per-view is the final. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's right. This isn't meant to be... I mean, it is great foresight because I think the next match is a fucking quarter-final that gets like five stars and still does it the match of the year and stuff like that. But yeah. no one is here to see... I really want to see Akira Hokuto in a quarter-final. No one's there for that. But <laughs> yeah. see Akira Hokuto win the whole fucking thing. And um, yeah, so this is just kind of a teaser, but you can kind of play on it. And again... You know, Ronnie Radford to the magic of the cup. Maybe Eagle Sawai will pull off the greatest upset of all. No, no, she's not. Follow-up question. If you're saying this is more of a TV match than a pay-per-view match, is it a TV match or is it a house show match? Because for me... <laughs> no, I think it's specifically a TV show match to build up to the semi-final and the final. It's laying the groundwork for yeah, later on. Yeah, it's telling a story. I, also, I don't think people are taking power bombs this gnarly on a house show. <laughs> I mean, AJW definitely was. Oh, God, yeah, thing. absolutely. I, I mean, the only reason that I suggest is it more of a house show is because it feels like it's kind of almost an exhibition match. It feels like it's... Although, you know, they're doing their best to give it a feeling of stakes, but I don't think anybody genuinely believes that there are stakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and I, I think you're you're correct, David. It's like, yeah, this is giving you a taster of Akira Okto because everyone knows they're going to see her again later in the show. Whereas, um, you know, the first match not being such a foregone conclusion, yeah, they really put the backs into it. They had the, uh, you know, they pulled out all of their all of their big moves, uh, and so it's. But you you don't want to burn out the crowd. In so far as you can burn them out, like six hours into a, into a show, but uh, you don't want to give people like your know, PWG syndrome, where like you know. I can't watch, I've never been able to get through a whole PWG show because all of the matches are high octane, one after the other, bam, 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 bam. You do need to pace this show. And this show is interestingly paced, uh, shall we say, <laughs> but um, I think this tournament actually, you know, it's as I said earlier, they go they, they go to great lengths to differentiate the matches from each other. And if you can do that while also, as Sarah said, sort of uh, playing on the story that, Hokuto has ring rust, and this is not an ideal opponent for the for the first round. So not someone you can really half arse it against because she is so big and strong and physically imposing. Um, I, I think actually this match, like obviously this is not the greatest Akira Hokuto match you've ever seen. It's not the greatest single survive match I've ever seen, but it does its job in terms of the overall story. This is not to say that the match is... Um, uh, devoid of uh, exciting things. I mean, far from it. Like these, um, I mean, Sawai hits a powerbomb in like the first 30 seconds and just like yeets Hokuto out of the ring, like with uh, you know, very little fanfare. It's just um, like the first few minutes of this match, this match only goes 10 minutes. It's, it's, it's very short compared to the other matches in the first round, which all get between 15 and 20. Um, it's, you know, the first few minutes are Sawai just hitting Hokuto, loads of big moves, and all of Hokuto's comebacks get get cut off 
she tries a strike but just gets mullered. So I was just hitting her with like scoop slams, you know, Boston crabs, Vader bombs, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And they give you just a little bit of a taster of Hokuto making a comeback when you know she manages to hit a couple of spinning kicks and then uh, we we do get in fairness we do get the big Hokuto dive uh, to the outside which was expertly caught by Sawai and caught solo we don't have the um the stardom bevy of nine children to catch all the dives to the outside <laughs> like so uh, fair play to Sawai for that and to Hokuto like looked absolutely fantastic but even that gets cut off because Hokuto goes with the superplex and she just gets uh, she just gets shoved off so like there's really not many points in this match apart from the finish where Hokuto manages to get a a kind of sustained burst of offense and even then the the burst of offense for the finish isn't that subdued it's just that like a lot of the moves uh, uh, you know it's not that sustained it's just a lot of the moves are northern lights bombs (laughs) there's a lot of up spots that feel like they could be going somewhere and then don't so you get the you know mostly to do with because eagles keep going for vader bombs so hokuto gets like a way of one and then she sort of lets out this big yell and gets the crowd in and it feels like the momentum starting to shift in the match but then that doesn't last very long and then there's another vader bomb and then so gets her feet up on that one and sends Sawai reeling but it really doesn't take very long for her to get back into control and i suppose it's the story is quite simple in its way is that you know so why is the power she she's the power she's the size you know she's got a lot of advantages but hokuto's wrestling smart she's using the space she's using so why size against her in places she's working smart not harder essentially but then how smart versus hard can you be when you are also just having a woman land on you that often yes there is also i mean smarter not harder for the worst part yes in the story of the match there is perhaps nothing especially smart about trying to give a woman the size of eagle so i a german suplex and she wouldn't be akira hokuto if she didn't try to do something really stupidly brave in every match no no it's but like this this but this is what i love about this match she tries a german and she kind of can't lift so i over and she'll just Hauls her background uh, backwards and just you know, gets squished a bit, but then she actually tries the German again and she does hit it and gets a one count. So I, that, that's a great spot. It's like, okay, I finally managed to lift this woman off the ground and hit a big mover on her and it gets one. That that's that's brilliant. It's just um, my only, I think, you know, I guess the the criticism of that spot I would say is that you're having uh you're having that big moment where like i can only get her for one but then like the finish isn't too long after that i think if this was a longer match then uh you know they could have i guess done a more gradual build towards you know how like in yokozuna matches when he would finally get taken off his feet they'd really build it up and he'd be like doing the and just doing the wobbly selling off the strikes and then he finally does it so yeah maybe a bit more sort of gradual a build-up towards the uh, the finish in this match if you have had this huge spell of so high pressure you know maybe more hokuto uh you know offense but like like we like we say we've gone over it before you know, like this is really a taster of what she's uh, of what she's capable of she's caught her on the break george that's what she's done counter-attack <laughs> football <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it, li- it literally is though this is this is such a counter-attack now you get some boxers who are counter-punchers like they'll they'll yeah. they'll soak up the blows or they'll just uh, dodge and weave. Like Muhammad Ali would do this all the time. He'd like dodge like twenty punches in the space of ten seconds and just taunt his opponent. Like if you've ever seen that gift. Until the referee jumped in and then the other guy <laughs> German suplexed up that. that <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh... yeah, I enjoyed the match. Like, uh, I, I mean, it's big egg. I don't think there was in isolation. I think pretty much every match on this show is fun to great. Um, or you know, you can get something out of it. It's not the best match in the world. It's not the best Akira Hokuto match in the world. I do really like Ego Sawai. Ego Sawai is very much just in my mold of Joshi wrestler. Like it's just a ma- uh, in, in a mold of wrestler that I like in general. Um, and yeah, seeing a big man because big man is a gender neutral term. Um, <laughs> yeah, seeing a big man just absolutely lay waste to someone, and then the other person having to try and crack the code of how to beat them and stuff like that. It's it, it's a tale as old as time. It is literally the foundations, the embryonic soup that wrestling is based on. Um, it'll never get old. And yeah, and again, I love I love the fact that they played on the fact that oh, Akira Hokuto, you know, she's pretty banged up. She can't do it like she did before. And I love the fact that they played that up instead of just having fucking Caesar roll in with his armies and just lay waste to everyone and just claim the spoils. It's just, it was I was an innovative way of looking at it of going how do we give them enough, but we're not completely blown our load on it straight away. But as well as that, it makes ego survive look really good. I mean, I don't I don't know if we can say it puts doubt in your mind, but you know what I mean, like of of it where you're going, if you it's the old Undertaker streak of dash, isn't it? Of yeah. if you got them to go once, go oh fuck, you might lose. If you can get that one, that one second, you've done that. I, I, I don't know if you n- necessarily got that in this, but you, you were close because I, everything was getting cut off, and it, yeah, it's, I, I really enjoyed it, and it's a good, a good formula, and I think an innovative way of doing this sort of quarterfinal tournament match, where it gives everyone what they need out of it. Yeah, and, and I think like because Hokuto is the draw. For this tournament, she is the story, and the thing is, argue she's the draw for this entire show. Yeah, exactly. And the 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 thing is about tournaments is, look, look, I love a tournament, all right, but a tournament with a story. Now that's 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 the real good thing. Because AW is AW is so bad for this. They they do so many tournaments, and they're just matches, and the good matches, but generally they don't really have this through line. Whereas contrast this with uh, Survivor Series 1998, the Deadly Game tournament. That is one of the greatest pay-per-views WWF ever put out. There is not a single good match on that show. Like, it is all dog shit. All of the matches are crap. But the story that the matches tell overall combined is so good that it's just it's just so well remembered because of that. George, I've literally watched a three-part documentary on Italia 90, which is empirically the most dog shit World Cup of all time. But nobody remembers that because of the story behind it. Like... Every game in Italian ninety was a fucking draw or one nil or like really bad. But I, and I, I, I had to explain this to my wife. I was like, oh, she's like, oh, do you want to watch this? I said, yeah. Just, but Italian ninety is dog shit. Like, you know, like the matches themselves are absolute dog shit. It's just literally everything else around it is yeah, what yeah, makes it. A, a, exactly. Like, there's no they, they mention the matches about for, for about three fucking minutes and the whole thing because they're all bad. Um, yeah. It's like here's Pavarotti, here's Nessendorma. Oh, what was that? Was that uh, was that uh, David Platt scoring last minute winner against Belgium? Oh, too late. Here's like these amazing Armani suits. But, yeah, 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 absolutely. I I I replied to someone 
uh, on Twitter the other day who described Italian 90 as the worst World Cup of all time. And I just posted that picture of Homer Simpson talking to Bart and the, and, and the caption, the worst World Cup of, of all time so far. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying, David, about Hokuto trying to crack the code of uh, of beating uh, Eagle Soi solving the puzzle. Uh, it turns out the answer to the puzzle is to just drop it on a head a bunch. Um, because the um, it's, it's the answer to a lot of puzzles in ADW. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> yes, it, really is. it really is. It's like the skeleton key, um, <laughs> but like um, the um, it's just you've 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 solved that you've solved the puzzle box. It just opens the door to a dimension where all of the moves are Northern Lights bombs. Um, so like, but like, yeah, literally, it's um, so I tries the big power bomb again. And it gets countered. Northern Lights bomb for two. Uh, so I counters another Northern Lights bomb, attempt it into a small package. Again, great to see a woman of the, that size doing a small package. Love it. Um, and then Hokuto just gets up. Second Northern Lights bomb for three. Now, to get a woman like Eagle So I up for that move, very, very impressive in the same way that uh, Yumiko Hotter getting Combat Toyota up for the Tiger Driver was so very impressive. And I'm never not going to love the, the, the Northern Lights bomb. Uh, her tribute to her idol, Al Snow. So uh, with uh, you know, it, it's it's a great move. It always looks the good. fucking look Sarah yeah. gave you there is incredible. <laughs> we are not making it to ten years, are we, though? <laughs> Less said about this, the better. Let's move on with our lives, shall we, guys? Yeah, uh, we, we, we agreed to start seeing other people. <laughs> like the um, so uh, yeah, that that's the match. Uh, Hokuto beats Sawai as every single person in the in the building knew that she would. Uh, she cuts a promo in the ring after, and so I gets a few words in the loser's enclosure. She, she doesn't look as uh, as devastated as Hotter, which is good, because I don't think my uh, my my empathic centre could take it. Um, so that is the uh, the second match of the tournament. So already through to the quarterfinals are combat players, FMW and... I actually... I was going to say, I actually translated Eagle Sawai's interview um, at the end, if if you want it. <laughs> yeah, go on. go on. As you as you know, I have been I've been studying Japanese for a wee while now, kind of on and off, you know, just after I walked in, I got into it and stuff like that. So, and I'm very rusty, but I I, I got the you know how you can kind of get the rough sentiment, the rough things. So I believe what she said was, it's a good day out for the lads. You know, the entire town came out to see us today. We made a lot. The, the chairman was uh, rubbing his hands in hospitality at the prospect of a replay. Um, this will this will really um, t- this will really tot up the coffers and give us a good war chest for next season and keep us going. Um, I believe is what Eagle Sawai said. There or thereabouts. I believe, and on Twitter she followed it up with the words, uh, "Great day for the lads, not the result we wanted, but fans were class. We go again." Hand <laughs> clap emojis. I think David. We yeah, move. I'm, I'm glad. We, I'm glad, despite the fact we now saw on the podcast who speaks a bit of Japanese, we haven't yet retired this bit. Long may it continue. I think you could probably like make some good steps towards a decent understanding of conversational Japanese in the time that it takes you to come up with this. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a couple of things that spring to mind about this finish in particular. So number one is shout out to um, Kieran Lafort and Mark Buckleby of the Must See Matches podcast, um, whom I caught up with earlier this year to talk about the Akira Hokuto versus Manami Toyota match from AJW Destiny Climax 1995, um, in which we were talking about the finish to that match essentially being this has been really long, drawn out someone's just had loads of offense or like Toyota has taken a bunch of punishment and then she gets back into the ring with Hokuto and then literally like two moves later she has won like they've given this whole match 
that's kind of the trajectory has been like Toyota just taking loads and loads of punishment and then uh, and or you know and then she just gets back in the ring and like two moves and wins that is very much a theme like that seems like it's part of the HAW storytelling in the mid 90s to kind of have these finishes that feel like they're going against the run of play um, and it's kind of it's almost it's giving you the finish that you it's either the finish that you need with the match that you want or it's the match that you need with the finish that you want. Like it's, <laughs> yes. fundamentally, you're not you're not necessarily getting both. There's a lot of finishes that come out of nowhere and that kind of mean that you get to the right place, but there's a lot of questions about how you got there along the road. None of them for political reasons, obviously. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. None of none of this being political. You wonderful naive. Just, just, um, just like the just like a UK print journalist, I shall simply pretend I did not see it. Yeah. Well, in fairness, I, you know, I do think. Um, Eagle Sawai is protected in this. She just she looks like she could have won. She looks like she almost had it, but Hokuto is smarter and you know and just that kind of has that little bit of cunning that means that she figured out a way to get that to, to get the right moves in at the right time. Um, but that's the that's also kind of I think of that as being the same dynamic as a lot of Miyu Yamashita matches in Tokyo Joshi mm. nowadays with this idea of. Miu has had some great matches recently where actually it's really felt like she has not had the best of the match, but she's so dangerous that if you let your guard down for a second, she will get that massive kick to the head in and you are done. That is it. Game oh, over. Yeah. She like won. there was one there was one jab with uh, Hikari Noah last year, which is probably one of my favourite matches of the year. I thought that was a great example. Yeah, of this. and it's like maybe eight or nine minutes long. And Hikari Noah, she's a mid carder, she's having like the match of her life. She's got, getting loads of offense against Mia Yamashita, way more than you would assume. And then she comes in with something, Mia hits her head kick, boom, you're done. That's it. That's brilliant. And something like that can tell the story of how the other people uh, on the roster are rising up to challenge the ace and they're really improving their skills. And each time they can get more and more and more, but they can still get caught out by, by a big move because the ace is that wily and that experience that they can do it. Having said that about so, um, just about Sawai having almost pulled it out. I'm just trying to think, was there any point really that she did a move and got a two count where you thought it could put Hokuto away? There was no. a small package near the end, but she was still so near and yet so far because she didn't get to hit her finish. She did that power bomb at the start, but yeah, you're not winning in the first minute of the match. You know, this isn't uh, this isn't IGF. So thank fuck. But um, you know, there's um I I still think, yeah, it makes Sawai look good, but at the same time did she get especially close to winning despite all her offense or is it what um, people used to talk of the, uh, you know, the Barcelona and Spain sides once people figured out their tactic, was it what they called sterile domination? Did they have a lot of the match, but actually weren't creating many winning chances from it? It, it did feel very much like a sort of a, a, two, a routine like 2 0 Celtic win where you've absolutely thrown the kitchen sink at them for like 75 minutes. They get one after 75 minutes, the heads drop, and then they get a second in, and that's it. It's, and now it's just a case of returning back to the week uh, and concentrating on a good start there. But like it's, um, yeah, it is one of those things where that happens in sport where people will have the game of their lives, but they are on a lower tier than the other person. and I think the phrase is, is class will shine through um, yeah. in this. And yeah, it very much is a case of this. And yeah, it's and, and, class and, shining through. It's an argument that, you know, the wine was never going to win that match. So the best she can do is make herself look credible. 
against that. And I think even, you know, that in and out of kayfabe, uh, I think, is true. And I think it definitely, fundamentally, she holds her own and proves that she is a credible challenger, just not for Akira Hokuto. Yeah, absolutely. She's a credible challenger for LPW. Yeah. The, the proverbial small pond. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'd, actually, I'd actually just like to... Um, uh, uh, apologise for that last uh, comparison between AJW and Barcelona. It would be never be my intention to liken an organisation which went down the shitter due to massive financial mismanagement to AJW. So I would uh, just like to just like to make that clear here. Um, so coming up on the next episode, episode thirteen of Big Egg Podcasting Universe, which we've already edit, already recorded. So. Um, Night off for us. Um, we... <laughs> so it won't be six months between episodes next time. Me fucking hope not. I mean, you know, things happen. <laughs> um, five, uh... five and a half months later. <laughs> so um, <laughs> happy 2023, everyone. Yes, we will be um, uh, covering the other two quarterfinals in the tournament, which are JWP's Dynamite Kansai versus AJW's Kyoko Inoue, and then a one of the first Joshi matches Sarah and I watched, and what is for some people's money. Uh, one of the greatest matches of all time, if not the greatest match of all time, Arja Kong versus Minami Toyota, surely the greatest quarterfinal in the history of sport. And uh, so we look forward to joining you uh, for episode 13. But before that, uh, I assume we've got some shit to plug. So Sarah, why don't you go first? I shall. So first things first, honestly, most of you have heard us do these from part of it. Women love wrestling. This is both a universally agreed fact and a book that SA published. It's really talking about the idea of a female fan base for wrestling and the fact that it's always existed one way or another in the industry and haven't really been willing to acknowledge that. So the good news is that my essay is at the front and it's one of the shorter ones. So you can get that out of the way and it's a really great collection. Um, so you can get that from Amazon if you look for women love wrestling. Um, and proceeds from the sales in the US are going to rain, um, obviously, beloved of Mick Foley and a number of other uh, a number of other wrestlers because it's a very worthy cause and women did in the UK. Um, so I, I strongly recommend getting hold of a copy of that and, you know, making sure that women did feel the benefit, especially at times like these. Um, next up, the Must See Matches podcast, which I've already shouted out once on this episode, um, but shout out to um, Kieran Lafort and Mark Buckleby, who are going through a frankly balmy um, fan-made project um, where they looked for, they took votes, basically, on what are the most important must-see matches in wrestling history. Um, and now they're doing a podcast where they're going through a thousand matches that, that got to this level no a hundred i'm gonna say fucking hell like. uh, i mean frankly they could have gotten to a thousand but they're on a hundred um, and, and two of them have me on it so that's nice <laughs> them them just looking at the ballots like we we seem to have 500 votes for doing the clown versus heidenreich this one is from david forrest this one from david j forrest one from D- david s forrest i know it's <laughs> I feel like it's very much up there. It's in. It's a. It's a really fascinating mix of of matches. Actually, the the styles are. There's a bias because it was mostly like people on Twitter. Um. So there's a bias towards certain types of styles, but it's a really great variety of matches. Um. So we started with the two episodes that I initially spoke to them about. Um. Which were about matches between Chikisa Nagaya and Dump Matsumoto in 1985. Yes, the Budokan Hall match, and 
also um, La Galactica um, versus Jaguar Yakopa. So we had a bit of a mid-80s run, and that was so much fun that they invited me back for another one to talk about um, Akira Hokuto versus Manami Toyota, the patron saint, if you will, of what a lot of contemporary wrestling has become. Um, and we talked about their famous main event match from AJW's Destiny Climax 995. They were a ton of fun to record. There's a bunch of absolute madness already out there. It includes matches like John Cena versus Imaga. Um, I think, I mean, Savage versus Steamboat's probably in there somewhere, but, you know, we're, we're really here for the, the madness that is things like JBL versus... The bloodiest match of all time. I know. So there's there's some great matches um that have already been discussed and there's some great ones still to come. So have a look at that on at Mussy Matches on Twitter, find all of their links, and that was super fun to record. Um, you know, I'm I'm looking at what they do next. My final my my final plug is basically just to say that if you're listening to this, um we will probably publish some connecting information. So, for example, I publish show notes after every one of these episodes that go up on the website. I maintain the doublefootstompistilly.com. Yes, that is the name of our website, um, After, um, along with every episode. So you get a link to the SoundCloud on there to, to actually listen to the episode in case you found it via something else. Um, but crucially, then you're going to get match recommendations. You've got links to where the matches that we've spoken about and potentially some explanations of some of the in-jokes that we have alluded to on this co- on this podcast, but no promises. Um, so check those out. Women Love Wrestling and its beneficiary Women's Aid. Catch up on must-see matches and then read the show notes because I spend way too long putting them together for nobody to read them. Over to you, lads. David, go for it. So yeah, I so I run a, a party festival podcast. Um, what a time it is for the club, by the way. Our borders are fucking shambles. Allegedly, I should straight stress, just in case the board dialists for a gargantuan episode. Allegedly, um, and yeah, we've lost five games in a row. Uh, we're playing Morton at Capital with all the mutant wings banging on the corrugated iron this week. Um, it's not it's not a great time, but there's some great stuff going on around the club with the club legends and stuff like that, and as well as that, um, some other amazing things that we'll get into in a second. But the podcast is called Draw Always a Draw, um, and we talk about Thistle every week. I do um, special episodes. I do one every year um, on Halloween where we do like, the 10 most scariest things on a subject, and I fill it with hundreds of Halloween sound effects and like voice recordings of my friends pretending to be witches from four years ago that I've just kept banked and I use every year and honestly people don't listen to them as much I think they're really really funny episodes because it's just us as basically a collective counselling session for us about all the bad fucking games that we've been to but, <laughs> but they've said that's every episode <laughs> yeah well yeah um but it's good to look back and sort of peel open the wounds and stick a bit more salt in them. So it's quite good to sort of retrospectively do that. But um, yeah, so I would definitely say that like, the Halloween episodes are always good for a laugh. I would definitely recommend those or whatever. And if you are into Scottish football or whatever, um, or Fissile, you'll definitely give it a listen. We've got great documentary episodes and stuff that I do. Some really, really like high, high effort stuff, like proper professionally uh, edited. I say professionally edited, like it is meticulously edited i know it doesn't sound like it from this but i raised my a-game uh, for the documentary episode we're, we're doing a we're doing a whole bunch of so stuff. special right now we're a side piece 
No, 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 right. Don't, don't be like that, right? Uh, <laughs> no. I know right. what you mean because, like, these, these episodes have got fucking sound collages in. Exactly. And stuff like that and, like, yeah. proper historical interviews. Biggest podcasting universe has the, kind of, has the kind of slightly shambolic chaos energy that makes it great of a Yumiko hot <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Exactly, exactly, right. Yeah, um, and... I'm not going to lie, George, and this this will probably cause offence, but um, I I like doing the documentary episodes and I like being able to show them to people to show, look, this is what I can do as a podcast editor. I'm not doing it with this podcast. <laughs> I am not showing Fair perspective enough. employers this. Um, so yeah, so doing all that, but uh, we do part of the podcast, draw us a draw, great stuff, whatever. But the other thing that we've got on at the moment is um, as a group of let's be honest, socialist um, JAG fans who are doing some unbelievable work at the moment in terms of fighting the energy crisis and poverty and stuff like that. We, they're called JAGs for good. They do a food bank before every game. They've done a baby food bank uh, to bring in like, formula milk and stuff like that and nappies and stuff like that at the weekend. And they're, do, uh, they're also assisting Morton this week and doing it there. Every week they do a food bank. They could be sitting in the woody getting pissed before the game. They don't. They sit out in the pissing rain for 90 minutes before the game, take all the food bank collections, usually miss the start of the game. And the amount they have raised in terms of food and stuff and like the actual effect it's had is incredible. They gave away, I believe it was about 100-odd tickets to asylum seekers um, who came to Glasgow and don't have really have ways of connecting with people and um, gave them a, a reason to go out and about in Glasgow and meet people and stuff like that. They done an energy fundraiser to get top-ups for key meters. Now, I have a key meter, and I actually got given a top-up by, I don't know who, but they gave me a top-up, and it's invaluable stuff. Um, but they have raised, in six weeks, seven and a half grand for people to like to, to buy them electricity. And, like, so, I mean, like, for example, at the moment, my electricity for the month is about £80. So you think about how many months like our, our families are going to have from seven and a half grand and it's still going. They are unbelievable. We are going to do stuff for them. We've got an event planned. We're trying to do in February. We're going to try and raise a bunch of money for that as well. But if you have any spare change, Jags are good. It's not even a football thing, to be honest. It's just it's just they are all Thistle fans. But they do. if you're from Glasgow and you can spare it, well, if you're from anywhere, to be fair, but if you're from Glasgow... Uh, it is vitally important. There will be people you know who will directly benefit from it. Um, it's unbelievable the stuff they are doing and far better than anything I have ever done. <laughs> um, like they are un- absolutely unbelievable people and they're all lovely. They are unbelievable. It is incredible the stuff that they are doing. Um, as well as that, um, on a slightly less philanthropic note, um, I have a friend, uh, Lindsay, who does a Glasgow football tour. Um, it's basically a tour of all the stadiums in Glasgow, and they also do ones in Hamilton, not Hamilton, sorry, at Hamden, of the different Hamden parks, because there's three, soon to be four Hamden parks. She also does a podcast about the history of Glasgow football, about all the people that, you know, do stuff in Glasgow football. She, she's, done, she's doing graveyard tours and stuff like that, but I help out with that podcast from time to time as well in terms of the editing. I was even on it talking about, Thistle uh, for an hour, but if you have any remote interest in Scottish football, uh, Glasgow football tour, they have they have a Patreon. It's like 
one pound or three pounds a month and it's two episodes a month and they are brilliant they are brilliant they're really really good fun and it's about a whole variety of different guests and stuff like that and i would definitely recommend it if you're looking for some sort of historical basis and even just finding out about people doing stuff in glasgow um you know the people who do like you know lgbt inclusive football teams you know women's five-a-sides and stuff like that you know to kind of get in mental health stuff and all that in there as well as some great dollop of when maradona turned up at hand and stuff like that so definitely yeah. i would definitely suggest that as well i i enjoyed those plugs because um when you said the board is a shambles it actually provided a rare example of a statement which will not be dated when this uh, episode because <laughs> the board will always be a shambles as far as the stuff i've got to plug um sarah's already mentioned the website i maintain the double foot not only can you find the show notes you can find articles written by us as well as many of our comrades you can follow this podcast uh, at Puro podcast on twitter uh, you can also find our stuff on soundcloud itunes and stitcher radio where you'll be able to listen to every single episode not just of big egg podcasting universe but also of the mainline Puro Puri podcast episodes we are currently in the middle of a series looking at the influence of wrestlers from the former soviet union in japanese wrestling that has proved uh, very very interesting and we are trying to have to balance um some generally very sincere attempts at a good faith analysis of the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the historical consequences of this with talking about like Buzz Sawyer matches and and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's quite the tightrope. Especially because considering we started in late 2021 when we never thought there would be any sort of issues of um, going knee deep in with Russian references at all. Um, (laughs) Yes. Who could have seen that Russia was going to launch some kind of war? Not I. But um, so, uh, yes, do give uh, do give all of that stuff a listen. As far as the other stuff that I have on a personal level to plug, you can buy my novel, The Rise and Fall of the Dozan, for your Kindle or a, uh, a printed version off of uh, the old internet. Uh, it's a novel about the birth of professional wrestling in Japan in the 1950s and 1960s. About Ricky Dozan, who was the biggest television wrestling and sports star in Japan at the time. It's a novel about the... Uh, about nation building identity the role of sport in this nation building uh it's got some like salacious organized crime stuff in in there as well and you know it's about uh you know meeting your heroes lost innocence yada 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 all serious sort of novel themes uh but uh do uh yeah so do give that a look uh it's got nothing but five star reviews on on the amazon at the moment from people who know absolutely fuck all about professional wrestling to people who know rather too much about but uh, specifically 1950s and 1960s japanese wrestling far more than i ever will so i think good if i can uh if i can impress both those groups of people then yeah, it's probably good. You'll enjoy it. Give it a look. Uh, also, you can follow me at twitch.tv forward slash Lord Tenpai. That is L-O-R-D-T-E-N-P-A-I, as well as being a uh, podcaster and uh, novelist in my spare time. I'm also a competitive Mahjong player. I have uh, placed in the top 20 of the last uh, two out of three UK Opens, and I've represented the UK in the last two years in the International Online Richie Mahjong Championship, all of which... W- I've done without being convinced that I'm actually that good at the game. But if you would like to see me try and improve my skills, discuss Mahjong strategy, uh, you know, learn a little bit about the game. If you're a fan of the Yakuza series or Final Fantasy XIV and wondering what all this Mahjong stuff is about, uh, I, I can be your friendly guide. If you want me to uh, shit on various uh, centrist slimes in the Labour Party, then I do a lot of that stuff as well. So uh, do check out my stream for where that happens. Twitch.tv forward slash Lord Tenpai every Thursday night at 8 p.m uk time when we're not podcasting or 
doing something else or not having a crisis of confidence about my Mahjong ability, do tune in for that. And sometimes I play other games, mostly RPGs and deck builders. With all that being said, it is now time to put the capper on episode number 12 of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. That again. That it doesn't. Um, it, it, yes, again. Thank you very much, Sarah. Just twist the fucking knife once It was more. not my fault. I'm just saying it was not my fault. I never said it was. <laughs> yeah. Everyone was just scared to tell me Lisa, that it Lisa, wasn't their Lisa fault. was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so join us again for episode number 13. We'll continue to discuss the very prestigious and very, very fun VTOP tournament. I've been your host, George Thompson. I'm signing off for Sarah Parkin and David Forrest, and we shall see you next time now. Fuck off. <laughs>